The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Yo, 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 what up? This is Rocky Asuka Romero of Chaos, and you are listening to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcast, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcast, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From the Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome To keeping a strong style The ASA podcast On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here With the young boy Josh Smith on today's show, we'll review the NJPW Strong Independence Day shows and cover all latest news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Please support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping a strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, prowrestlingtees.com. Slash social suplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by the NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWworld.com, frequently updated and with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared plus synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit njpwext.us today for details. Young boy, how was your uh, 4th of July? Oh, um... You know, Fourth of July. Fourth of July is a weird holiday, man, because it's my favorite holiday, or at least one of them, right? I love to cook out, love the fireworks, the whole shebang. But we got we got a dog that hates uh, the Fourth of July, and because he's somewhat metal, medically compromised, we can't like leave him to his own devices yeah. while while the house is under attack from the giant booming noises <laughs> in the sky. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for the past few years, we just stay in and like hang out with him, which is fun. I mean, it, I'm not complaining about it, but it's a different experience from what I'm used to where you go out, you watch the, the fucking fireworks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they go hard, bro. We're out here in like, uh, 
uh, Trinity, like out in the sticks, where they go to like two in the morning. It's kind of fucking crazy. Blowing off that uh, Cody Rhodes pyro. Nah, bro, they're doing like the Brock Lesnar pyro, you know what I mean? Like the big pyro. (laughs) (laughs) Roman Reigns at WrestleMania, Charlotte at WrestleMania pyro. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, I'm lucky that uh, our dog is not, uh, you know, doesn't really care about the fireworks. So, yeah, we were able to see some fireworks, uh, got some uh, barbecue over at uh, my parents' house and... Also, Bro, no. you never invite me to shit. Like, you need to start inviting me to some things that you are doing. <laughs> and feed me. Um, We actually, we got a clubhouse. And uh, I saw signs around town where the clubhouse was like, they're in barbecue food. And you just sign up. You you pay some, you know, uh, money under the table that's off the records from the IRS. And uh, <laughs> you, you get a little gimmick. And uh, it was kind of funny. Like, we were the only people that were literally probably under 50 in this whole i mean it's every <laughs> old as fuck holes <laughs> on top <laughs> yeah i like the food she didn't like the food whatever but you know got myself a hamburger hot dog handshake you know <laughs> the deal <laughs> and then the old people were like oh you gotta go there's some lovely dessert in the back brenda made it and it's <laughs> and i went back there and there's no way brenda made this bro because it's in that black tray with the plastic cover on it from Publix with the tape on the sides. Like <laughs> she did not make this. Brenda's a worker. She's working. <laughs> she worked all those old fields. <laughs> like, nobody made this. This came from Publix. Like, come on. This is Win Dixie. Brenda's like, nah, I made it. <laughs> yeah, she's like, Brenda's the best. I'm like, all right. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So you know, fourth is cool, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> but uh yeah you need to start inviting me to shit bro to, to the cookout invite you to the cookout yeah you know i you know i deserve a plate at the cookout yeah, yeah you're you're one of us <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't go that far <laughs> uh I, there, there might be some listeners who still think that you're you know us bro remember um <laughs> we were all like at a uh at a house show Back in the day, we were all at like a, sm- a, fr- a SmackDown holiday house show, mm-hmm. and uh, we were we were like all in a chat or something, and we were all showing pictures, like taking selfies of ourselves, and it, this was in the Facebook uh, the wrestling square, square circle, yeah, wrestling square circle Facebook group that we run, and I took a picture of myself and I put it in the group, and like people were like, "What? <laughs> Josh isn't black." <laughs> They thought I was black. And, bro, I've never said anything to in, to indicate that that was the case on any level. But my picture just wasn't my, you know, my profile picture wasn't my picture. It was, like, probably the logo for for keeping a strong style. Yeah. And pe- people are like, this is blowing my mind right now. And I'm like, how, bro? I never did anything. Like, <laughs> Well, the people assume, you know. They- I'm not out here appropriating. They see you with me and Rich and James. <laughs> he's, That's racist, bro. He's got to be one of them. <laughs> oh, that shit man. was funny. Oh, man. Well, we got some uh, New Japan Strong to uh, talk about on the show here today. Before we do that, we got to do the June match of the month, June wrestler of the month. That's right. We're in July halfway through the year uh so let's uh list out here our, our june match of the month rest of the month if, if you go by uh by our calendar year we're 
past the halfway mark. That's true, yeah. Yeah. So um, the New Japan June match of the month, and it kind of feels like cheating a little bit. Why Why is it cheating? Well, because it, it's Forbidden Door. And, like, in kayfabe, Forbidden Door is like a joint New Japan AEW show. But it's really a Tony Khan show. You know, it's one of those. I see the lion mark in, in, in the graphics. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to count it, but I mean, uh, you know, it, it either was going to be match of the month or it was going to be excursion match of the year contender. <laughs> so you got to take it one way or the other. But uh, this this uh, June New Japan match of the month, not, none other than Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega 2 from Forbidden Door. And uh, we've done a full review on that match, so we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of it once again, but an incredible incredible matt in fact i think that was our last episode was the review of uh forbidden door it's been so long yeah that's right so yeah go if you haven't heard that yet go on uh, keeping a strong style feed or so suplex feed or one nation radio feed also the, the youtube video up on the social suplex youtube so tons of ways to uh listen and watch last week's joint review of forbidden door that we did with uh, rich latta and james boyd from one nation radio yeah, we got a lot of uh, positive feedback from that episode, so thank you guys. Um, I'm taking a, just a very brief look to see what else was highly rated in the month of June. I mean, there were some really great matches. The match with uh, Tanahashi, Kiyomiya, Miyahara versus Okada, Kano, and Aoagi. That's got like a 9.12 and got a 4.5 from Dave. Um, the BCC versus Tanahashi, Okada, Ishii match from um, Dominion. From Dominion. Very highly rated. Suji and Sonata from Dominion, very highly rated. So some really great matches in the month, but kind of uh kind of everything kind of got blown out of the water when it comes <laughs> to uh, you know, a, a true blue match of the year contender. And uh that's exactly what Omega and, and Osprey was. So yeah. match of the month. Then for the wrestler of the month, we're gonna go with the rain maker, Kazuchika Okada. Had a great June, uh, had the, the big uh, never six-man match at Dominion, got five stars from Dave, I gave it five also, him, Ishii, and Tanahashi defending against Moxley, Claudio, and Shooter, then he also had the, the all-together six-man that you mentioned, also highly rated, and then of course, the, the dream match with the American Dragon, Brian Danielson, at Forbidden Door, and even though Brian had a broken arm um, going into the, in in the middle of the match, still ended up being a great match. That most people are four and a half to uh, four point seven five on it. So great matchup and great month for Okada. You know, Jeremy, I, I threw this out there. I didn't say this on last week's episode. And uh, you know, talking to Rich, he talked a little bit of sense into me about why this probably isn't true. But I just I just want to throw this out there. What if, what if it, Danielson doesn't have a broken arm at all? What if shit's a work? Why? Well, because bro, because then they can say, I, I tapped out Kazushiko, oh, you know, Kazushiko Okada with a broken fucking arm. Yeah. And then he's got that claim that like, even with the broken arm, I beat you. And they can, like, do a lot with that. There's a lot of marketability you can do off of that, rematches, but not even just that. Like, you can build his whole character off of that mm -hmm. moving forward. Like, make him, you know, obviously he's always been, like, a technical wizard and a, you know, submission master. But, like, 
It's like getting your red belt, you know. Mm-hmm. He's a master now. The only thing that once I and I, and the other thing I was thinking about it too is like, how do we know he really broke his arm? What have we seen? Uh, an X-ray from his professional wrestler wife? <laughs> how do I know that shit's real? I don't know that that's real. Oh. She's in the business, bro. She's a worker. I'm not gonna believe Brie Bella. <laughs> But Rich, Rich did throw something out there. He said, uh, you know, he's probably going to have to miss Blood and Guts. Yeah, he is. Uh, they're advertising, you know, mystery men for both the elite because Kingston will be in the G1. And then they're advertising a mystery guy for the, the Blackpool Combat Club side of things. Well, you know, if, if something ever pops up and we hear, you know, that, yeah. that shit wasn't on the up and up. I'm the first <laughs> to say it. Yeah, if it was a work, I think they would have done the the Cody gimmick where he gets like the steel, you know, cast thing, and he goes into blood and guts and uses his arm as a weapon. No, nah, they got oh oh yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's just hope they can do a blood and guts correctly, just one. We'll see. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, June match of the month, wrestler of the month. Uh, let's talk about uh, Independence Day. From New Japan Strong. So this past week we had uh, two shows from Cork and Hall. That's why we delayed this week's recording. You know, normally we record on Monday nights. But with these shows happening Tuesday and Wednesday, we decided to push off the recording, record tonight. That way we can spend a good amount of time talking about two pretty good shows here. And then next week we'll have the full episode to preview G1 Climax 33 with our good pal Chris Samsa. Does he know he's coming on the show next week? Uh, I think he does. I'll, I'll message him again to, to make sure. Um, but yeah. All right. <laughs> he's probably listening. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you're on next. <laughs> Chris, if you're listening, <laughs> you're, you're, you're joining us. Holla, <laughs> if you hear me. <laughs> Bring the stat sheets, brother. Um, so, New Japan Strong Independence Day. These were uh, two shows from Corken Hall in Tokyo, Japan. Pay-per-view. On NJPW World, two shows for 30 bucks. Uh, let's start off with night one, which was... And, and, and we have to press it, preface, preface this by saying two nights under one event name, and they did 12,000 attendance. Each night, or... Cumulative. Mm. 12,000, Cork and Hall, cumulative, two nights. Yeah, that place was packed. It was jam-packed. I'm lying, but I was told that you can, <laughs> when you have a two-night event and it's under the same name, you can just bump it up by a few thousand and, <laughs> and just claim that, and that's what it was. I was so, say, I, I knew Corkin. I didn't think it was that high, but it was it was pretty jam-packed there, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, they, did, they did just above 1,400 each night, which is pretty much capacity crowd, which is really great, and... Uh, this was an awesome crowd, and not just an awesome crowd, but, like, this was full of sickos, bro. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This, this wasn't your typical Corkin crowd. This was, like, the Corkin crowd that's been watching Strong because yeah. they knew who everybody was, and they knew, like, all the chants. And there was definitely a strong conting- contingency of, of like, ghouls. deathmatch fans. Yes, there were, there were, you know, Japanese Dan Coffins out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, The ghouls. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the crowd was great. It kind of reminded me of the Honor Rising shows they used to do with Ring of Honor back in the day when you had those few Corkin 
shows when the, the Cork and we packed, they knew all the ROH guys, they knew all the ROH chants, you know, they were cheering for Beer City Bruiser, like they, they knew it all. Um, yeah, it, it, that was definitely the vibe. Um, I, I almost forgot about those shows, to be honest with you. <laughs> I was trying to find a good comparison, but I was like, these these shows in a way almost remind me of like, you know, sort of Fantastic Mania, but they still, everything is still within that realm of strong style. So it's like, it, it, it truly was an American spin on your classic new japan pro wrestling very much in the same vein as what you just mentioned like the honor rising shows from back in the day when roh used to come over it's a lot like that in in a lot of ways yeah uh so we had uh ian riccoboni and chris charlton on the english commentary call uh so night one we opened up here this was a tuesday july 4th we had a pre-show six-man tag match it opened up the broadcast with oscar lube Raisuke Gucci and Yo defeating Dragon Libre, Kengo, and Takahiro Katori. 10 minutes and 45 seconds. I, I wasn't too familiar um, with the uh, the independent uh, talent that came through. Um, you know, once I was watching the show, they kind of explained that these uh, gentlemen hail from the Freedoms uh, promotion, which is where Jun Kasai has uh, made his name in a lot, you know, and had a lot of his legendary battles in Japan. So uh, that's where these guys came from. And at first when we, you know, cause we didn't get to do a preview for these shows. Unfortunately, the good news, everything that I was going to predict is exactly what happened. And I would have been hundred percent correct if we had done a preview. So same here. Yeah. Perfect. We would have been hundred <laughs> percent perfect and nobody can tell us otherwise, <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, um, I didn't know who these guys were and I was a little confused. I'm like, you know, it's, it's strong, but it's in Japan, but it's for the U S you know, for independence day. But then we're bringing in guys from the Japanese Indies. Like I'm not computing all this, but once they sort of explained it on um, commentary made all the sense in the world, like in North America, the strong brand has a reputation of going from city to city, town to town and gathering some of the best local talents that are available and kind of integrating them and giving them a showcase and a little bit of a platform so that they can, you know, sort of be introduced to the world on the strong uh, platform. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they were continuing to do, but just in Tokyo. So whereas you might not see like uh dragon Libre and these other gentlemen on your traditional, you know, new Japan road to show or something like that putting them on strong and kind of continuing that same um, tradition of what we see over in North America made a lot of sense once they sort of explained it that way. Plus having um, Jun Kasai in the main event and having some of his underlings there and get, letting them kind of get some exposure as well as experience. And then they also worked as like ring boys, uh, not ring boy, not ring boys, but you know, like sort of like the Young security lions. detail. Yeah. yeah. Like the lines, like, basically working in that same capacity during the main events was another sort of benefit to them as well. So um, I liked that they did this actually, once I sort of understood more why they were doing it. Yeah. Same with you. Yeah. Ian and Chris did a great job kind of explaining that kind of contrast and what you, <clears throat> what you get with strong and, um, and doing that there in Japan. So yeah, I thought it made all sense in the world to yeah, include uh, those indie talents and you know, it, it was a fun opening six man match. You know, you had a lot of, uh, antics here and there's a, a stuff funny that i uh, got in the mix here and uh 
ultimately the yeah I'm, I'm not sure to be honest with you um i think it's takahiro katori i think that's the gentleman who brings a stuffed uh bunny rabbit with him which was kind of a little bit i don't know i'm not gonna throw any um throw any shade because i i, I don't know the timelines and stuff but like he was kind of dressed similarly to Hiromu Takahashi mm-hmm. similar vibes similar look stuffed rabbit Daryl you, you, you see what I'm getting at there like I don't know like, <laughs> you know who wore it better that's basically what yeah. we were seeing yeah here, he but. was he was the uh, Hiromu at home version yeah <laughs> <laughs> we got Hiromu at home <laughs> but um yeah the 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 Hontai crew uh, decided to steal this gentleman's um, stuffed bunny rabbit, and they kept putting it down their pants and doing lewd, lascivious acts. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Some people are into it. Not me so much, but it is just kind of like opening show, house show antics. So it, it is what it is. It's a little bit of a storyline that kind of continued on the next evening. But we did see some good um, – athleticism and work from the 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 you know the visiting team yeah i like the dragon libre i'm mark for anybody who has a, a mask and has some dragon in their name uh yeah I, I don't think there's a single wrestler and i could be wrong here but i don't think there's a single wrestler that i've ever disliked who used the name dragon once your name's dragon you have to be fucking raw raw <laughs> like you just have to be raw like <laughs> shingo brian danielson Ultimo Dragon, like Ricky's Dragon, Ricky Steamboat, Steamboat, Ice Dragon, all of them. Amazing. Ice <laughs> Dragon, bro. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so Yo gets to win here, direct drive on Dragon Libre. Uh, it's a fun uh, pre show match there. Yep. So then the uh, main card opens up. Our good friend Rocky Romero hits the ring, and he uh, said New Japan Strong Wrestlers have been waiting to come here for three years. So tonight, enjoy our American Strong Style Wrestling. Welcome to New Japan Strong Independence Day. We've got a little VTR video. It took us to the first match of the evening on the main card, which was Bad Dude Tito from TMDK defeating the DKC. Yeah, um, Bad Dude Tito, he's done a few tours in Japan in the past, and so he's not necessarily a stranger to this audience. DKC was someone I wasn't totally sure how he would be received by the Cork and uh, Hall crowd. And I definitely think that the, uh, the crowd was more in favor of Bad Dude Tito, just generally speaking. Again, he's been here before, and he definitely endears himself to Japanese-style wrestling. We've said it before, like, there's so many different people that he sort of reminds you of but i think the strongest uh comparison is like a young doctor that steve williams and any, anyone that wrestles that way and has that look is going to get over here but with all that being said i thought dkc had a had a much better uh reaction from the crowd than i was maybe anticipating and yeah, that was well, the first well dkc has been to japan before there was a tour he did last oh, that's year right he did he did the um the super junior tag league, right? Uh, I don't think it was tag league. There was some like random tour that he was on that he was a bunch of undercards. I forgot he was here. Okay. But this is the first time he's been back since, since then, then with yeah. the full gimmick and, and, and everything like that. Um, so that, that, that probably actually is a better point because I didn't realize he'd been here before, but, um, 
the crowd was so into him that I was like, oh shit, these people watch strong. Like, they know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they know who these characters are and they're really into the brand, which makes sense because it's been airing on New Japan World for quite a while. So, yeah, three years. Um, yeah. yeah. And then uh, I thought the match was very good. I thought that um, both men had a lot of, of high spots and good points. And it wasn't so much a one sided beatdown as I was maybe anticipating. And uh, first time matchup between these two guys, but you know the, the the biggest thing at the very very end here was Bad Dude Tito finishing off DKC with the Steiner screwdriver, which I did not expect, and it was fucking awesome. Dude, I popped huge. I I I jumped out the couch when he pulled out the Steiner screwdriver. Um, you know, you mentioned about wrestlers that um, he looks like. He also can remind you of a you know a young Scott Steiner. And so pulling out the Steiner screwdriver was like a perfect, you know, kind of semblance there for him and kind of how he models himself. And yeah, that was a great finish. I hope he continues to use that going forward. But like you mentioned, he's a guy that I feel like really fits into the New Japan strong style. He's somebody like if this was like the 80s or, or you know, 90s, he would be like that, you know, wild foreigner coming in. He'd be like like that Dr. Death. He'd be a Steiner Brothers. He'd be one of those kind of big kind of brooding guys just throwing people around that people would really dig. And I think the crowd were into him here. A lot of big power moves, lariats before the Steiner screwdriver. He had a really great uh, blue thunder bomb for a great near fall. And then, yeah, finished him off with the Steiner screwdriver. And, uh, yeah, really good win here for um, Bad Dude Tito. One thing that made that also very... Um compelling they were talking about how he was competing here with the separated shoulder yeah, that's right yeah. need um you know medical attention but he's kind of putting that off so that he could be here on this tour and work these matches and he was definitely uh working with the sling there so um now you know i might not believe brian danielson broke his arm but i believe bad Tito has a separated <laughs> shoulder <laughs> But I, I also I, I want to say I thought DKC had a very good showing and it takes a lot of balls to be willing to take a Steiner screwdriver, even even though, like like you mentioned, it'd be cool for him to continue to use that. That's one of those moves where. You can only use it if the people you're wrestling are willing to take it or they, they trust their yeah. job guys and they have no no option other than to take it. But <laughs> most main wrestlers are not going to because the margin of error is so slim. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Uh, you know, hats off to DKC because he was like, if I'm going over, or like, if you're going over, brother, like, you're going over big. <laughs> yeah. Find your screwdriver. <laughs> so, uh, next match, we had the team, filthy team of Jarrell Nelson, JR Kratos, and Royce Isaacs defeating Alex Zane, Lance Archer, and Roy Oiwa, 10 minutes and 26 seconds. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. You know, we got to see, uh, team filthy here and then, First time seeing Alex Zane team up with Lance Archer. Monster and Archer's sauce. Bit, huh? Said monster sauce. Yeah, we we'd find out the next evening that these guys are forging a tag team and uh they're gonna be known as Monster Sauce, but this was the first Genesis or iteration of their their teaming together. And we haven't seen Alex Zane in quite a while because he's been um dealing with injuries and and so this is his I think his first match this year, actually. Yeah, they said uh, his first match in three or four months. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on the Archer side of things, it's very interesting because we haven't seen him in New Japan since the demise of uh, Suzuki-Goon. And the last time he was here in the country, he was still a member of Suzuki-Goon. And so 
now he's back and it's sort of like in the kayfabe well where's where are we going to see the murder hawk monster sort of align himself so that question kind of lingers there and then you know finally you got oiwa who is still a young lion and in any other like road to style show you would just say to yourself well like it's very obvious what's going to happen here you got the young lion you got you know the bad guy team on this side and oiwa is definitely going to lose except this is new japan strong and we've seen lions win against people that you wouldn't expect them to beat um on new japan strong so the the chances of a of a win here actually go up exponentially because of the fact that it's not a traditional road to show it's new japan strong and and the rules change there yeah i think definitely the new japan strong it just kind of adds a different level of unpredictability unpredictability because like we've seen like when Ren Narita first showed up on strong you know beating filthy Tom Lawler and being Fred Rosser and we've seen young lines come over and yeah get wins over established veterans on the, the strong brand of the U.S. so yeah it's very possible that you know Oiwa or you know just that his team could have gotten a win over team filthy um but that was even, not the even the LA Dojo Lions when they first started Clark Connors and Alex Coughlin and Carl Fredericks all those guys they were they were winning matches against established talent right out the gate. Yeah. Uh, Archer got a huge pop here. The crowd was definitely uh, happy to see him. And also uh, kind of a big pop when him and J.R. Kratos got in the ring together. Uh, kind of a big monster mash. And, man, Kratos, he had a uh, hematoma on his forehead that I guess, like, swelled up from traveling over to Japan. And then that thing got busted open in the middle of the match. And he was just drenched in blood. Yeah, you, we weren't even sure what caused it, but it just exploded, and it looked like a monster movie. It looked like uh, someone took a hatchet to him. Uh, very, very, very graphic, very nasty, and I don't think it was intended whatsoever. But, yeah, the, the interactions between Jared Kratos and uh, Lance Archer had Cork and Hulk buzzing. People were really into it. Hard work from all six men here. And going back to the thing with Oiwa, Ultimately, he was the one that ended up losing for his team. But the match structure, they actually gave him a lot more than what you normally see them give to a young lion in a similar, you know, six-man tag environment on like a road to show. Um, I, I don't think that's too surprising, kind of considering the fact that, um, you know, recently uh, Fujita declared himself as graduated. And so I'm, I'm sure that, you know, whatever's next for... Oiwa isn't far off in the, in the near future, but uh, ultimately Jarrell Nelson and Royce Isaacs were able to pick up the win here. But yeah, Jared Kratos was a bloody, bloody mess. Yeah. Yeah, Oiwa uh, busted out his cool uh, bridging gut wrench suplex towards the end of the match for a great near fall. Also, we saw a lot of um, Zayn and Archer's new like double team moves as this new team where Archer grabs Zane in a chokeslam, and he chokeslammed him into a moonsault onto uh, J.R. Kratos. That was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, they, they fucking rule. We're going to talk more about them the next night. That This should have been the first indication. Honestly, I didn't look too closely at these cards before I watched them, so you know, maybe there should have been an indication that this was leading to them teaming, you know, being an established team the next night. But sometimes we see uh, guys like this do you know, just short-term teams for, like, a little tour, and, and that's all it is. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, come to find out the next night, they plan to continue on with these guys, and they're, you know, they're, they've got some pretty cool offense. Also, 
How, how did we ever believe that Alex Zane is a junior? He's almost the same size as Lance Archer. <laughs> Oh, like man. literally, it's weird. Yeah, they keep saying, "Oh yeah, Zayn's close on the, the you know the weight limit for I'm like no <laughs> He's not on the weight limit. That man be eating the you know the beef gorditas <laughs> and you know the Baja Blast. That man, man's a heavyweight. <laughs> this dude's an undisputed heavyweight. Like you know, he he's bigger than like he's bigger than almost everybody. That's like uh, he's just he's not a junior. It's just, it's preposterous. <laughs> Oh man! So uh, next matchup, we had filthy Tom Lawler defeating Kosei Fujita eight minutes and fifty nine seconds. You know Tom Lawler is a man after my own heart. I I I know that there have been controversies in this country, Jeremy. I know that the American flag doesn't represent mean the same thing to everybody in this country, right? Mm-hmm. I get that. There's resentments, but I hold a soft spark. Or a soft spot in my heart for any gentleman that wears the red, white, and blue flag trunks. I just do, and it just it 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 has to do with 1990s and 1980s propaganda. I think it started with Rocky Three and Apollo Creed, and then Rocky Balboa, but then it continued on. You know, uh, Don Fry, okay, Butter Bean, some <laughs> some of the greatest legends of fighting all donned. The red, white, and the blue. Lex the Patriot. Luger. Lex Luger. That's another one. Lex Luger, the Patriot. I mean, these are some of the greatest performers that Kurt we've Angle. ever known. Kurt Angle. You know? So, Hacksaw I'm be Jim a Duggan. <laughs> he never wore the red, white, and the blue. He wore the, the, the closest I think he ever got was to where he had the stars on the singlet when he had the blue singlet. Mm. But I don't. But he did come out with the, with the flag, with the, yeah, with the old glory. But um, yeah, we saw uh, Tom Lawler. He he foregoed the you know the blue cutoff jean look, and instead he donned the red white. Oh, Rex from Rex Quando. Oh from, yeah, uh, break the wrist and walk away. <laughs> break the wrist and walk away. Not no, not your wrist. No, the other wrist. <laughs> the other wrist. <laughs> so yeah, Tom Lawler came out red, white, and blue gear donned the red white and blue and it was pretty sick and uh he took fujita to school man yeah he did you know i felt bad for tom you know he was supposed to have a match at uh forbidden door uh, against adam cole but adam cole had a fever couldn't compete and then he was having travel issues with uh delta he almost couldn't get to japan but yeah, luckily he was able to make it to japan and yeah had a great showing here with uh fujita and really just kind of showed off all his he, skills he beat fuego del sol <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, our Serpentico. Same the, guy in the Serpentico uh, in the dark match. Uh, he, he beat he beat a jobber from AEW who wears a mask. They're the same guy. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, Tom looked really good here in this match. And yeah, it really just kind of displayed you know his technical wrestling, his um, submission style, and yeah, looked really good in this match. And Vegeta's was the first time that he came out to a TMDK music by himself. Usually. Uh, if he's by himself, he still comes out with the Young Lion music. But so he came out with the TMDK music, had a shirt. His nameplate finally said the TMDK logo instead of the Lion Mark. So maybe this man really yeah. has graduated. I, I, I suppose so. Um, yeah, Tom looked great. Fujita, you know, definitely also very much into the map-based grappling style. Uh, ever since he started working under the tutelage of Zack Sabre Jr., and, you know, last year there was that uh, 
you know, kind of ongoing feud between Tom Lawler and Zack Sabre Jr. Sort of not just revolving around their technical acumen, but also around who was the better pop artist, Boy George or George Michael. So this kind of was a a little bit of an extension of that feud. Yeah, they also Um, had the uh, the TV title match this year also. Did that already happen or that's upcoming? That already happened. When did that happen? Because I don't know that I – did I see that match? It was, I think, it was on one of the strong pay per views this year. Man, I don't remember that. Match. <laughs> <laughs> or it might have been on ROH, but I think it, was, I think it was a strong pay per view. It, it very well might have been. I just don't remember it. But <laughs> you know, Tom Lawler was the longtime strong openweight champion, um, one of the most dominant champions in New Japan, and currently Zach is one of the most you know, dominant champions going today. So I'd love for those two guys to lock up once again. Yeah, it was a um, capital collision in April. Bro, I don't remember that <laughs> match. <laughs> but one thing uh, that uh, I saw Tom Waller do here that I really loved, he has a variation of the figure four where he locks into the, he doesn't use his legs to lock into the figure four necessarily, but he kind of uses like an S-grip, under and it's kind of hard to describe an audio but he's utilizing his arms to get into the figure four along with you know wrapping his legs around the guy mm-hmm. and uh very 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 cool but ultimately he was able to defeat kosei fujita uh via submission yeah he did hit a uh kamagoye and then he hit the uh the oh nat- that's right it wasn't submission he knocked him out yeah kamagoye nat- 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 on the brain yeah then yeah, the nat- he on the brain with the reverse kamagoye and uh yeah i got the pin yeah, I love that finish because uh, Fujita was in the nasty knee on the brain position, and then he rolled out of it, flipped him over, and inadvertently ended up in the Kamikoye position <laughs> and got basically just laid out. And then he hit him the, uh, the the reverse way and then beat him, which was a pretty cool finish. Yeah. So then after that, we had Eddie Kingston and our good friend Rocky Romero defeating Gato and Kenta. This was a uh, preview match for the next night's strong openweight title match between Eddie Kingston and Kenta. Yeah, um, you know, the story here being that Eddie Kingston has always adored Japanese-style wrestling, namely New Japan as well as All Japan, and has worked and toiled for years and years to get to Japan. And while he has been in Japan before, the last time was like, I think they said 12 years ago, and it was working for Osaka Pro, which is a smart, smaller indie. Mm-hmm. And he's never worked in Cork and Hall before. So finally made it to the hallowed grounds of Cork and Hall. He was here. And like you mentioned, a uh, preview match for the title match he'd have with Kenta the, the next evening. And ultimately, he was able to put away Ghetto with uh, the back fist. I don't know what he calls that back fist. Yeah, you know? isn't it the, the Yurikin? Yeah, the Yurkin. And uh, knocked him out, got the one, two, three. And uh, high emotions for Eddie, and the crowd was very much into him. They were also glad to have Rocky back, who is still currently, after last week's uh, CMLL Fantascomania, the world historic welterweight champion. I did not expect him to retain his title, but he's still champion. Yeah, everybody that was in the, oh, yes, this is where Voldor's going to get the belt back, but no. Our good friend Rocky. Fuck you, Volador. <laughs> we ride. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. So, big win there for, for Eddie and Rocky. Does Rocky know he needs to come on the show for episode 300? Uh, no, but uh, I should hit him up because, yeah, yeah, we're only a few weeks. We're, this week is uh, episode 292, so we're only uh, eight episodes away 
from uh, episode 300. And as tradition, you know, every 100 episodes, we, we have Rocky. Every 100 episodes. <laughs> we have Rocky on here. So, yeah, I'll, you know, hit him Rocky up. Rocky Romero comes out, and if he sees his shadow, then 100 more episodes <laughs> of keeping keep strong style. <laughs> Uh, so Rocky, if you're, you're listening, we, we gotta you know, book your pal, get you on here for uh, episode 300 of Kiss. Um, so yeah, they got the win here. Um, the next match we had another preview match here as Momo Kogo and the strong women's champion Willow Nightingale defeating the Mafia Bella, which is the team of Julia and Thecla from Stardom. And uh, the next night, Willow and uh, would be defending her strong women's title against Julia. Very, very fun match. Uh, very good preview. Um, I it, it, it was a little short. Um, I mean, they, they went just under 10 minutes, but they're working such a frantic pace. I felt like the match was maybe deserved a little bit more time because they were doing some really cool stuff. Um, I loved the double team moves from Momokogo and Willow Nightingale. Some really cool stuff there. And ultimately... Um, Willow was able to get the doctor bomb on Tekla and pick up the one, two, three. Yeah. I mean, uh, Willow is almost kind of like the, the female version of like a big kind of bruiser foreigner coming in, like the way she delivers those lariats and just overpowers, um, you know, a lot of the uh, Japanese competitors. And yeah, I thought she looked really good here in this preview match and her and Julia had some good stuff there. And uh, I thought that uh, Tekla looked pretty good as well. So yeah, fun matchup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as far as, and I guess we'll talk a little bit more about Willow Nightingale, but since you brought it up, I love her work when she, I mean, granted, I haven't seen any of the work in Ring of Honor, and I've heard she's had some very good matches over there. Um, But by and large, I haven't really been super keen on some of the work I've seen in AEW from her. And I don't know if it has something to do with like the match layouts or the structure or, or what have you, but I mean, she's she's definitely very popular and very over there, but she's not super imposing or physical. Mm-hmm. But in New Japan, she's been highly physical, and it's been very impressive, and I'm a pretty big fan of it. And I'd go as far as to say, like, when you talk about some of the, the more well-known, um, like, power women wrestlers that are out there today, and granted, I'm no expert on Joshi, so I know that there are some that exist that I'm just not that familiar with, but you know, talking about like more like Western wrestling, you, you think of like your Nia Jaxes or um, uh, what's her face? What, what or like Nyla, what's um, her name? Nyla Rose. Like Nyla Rose. Awesome Kong. Well, I wouldn't say awesome Kong. I'm thinking more like modern times, just mm-hmm. like who's out there right now. Right those now, two gotcha. women. And then maybe like uh the, uh, Jimmy Snuka's daughter, uh, Tamina, Tamina. Those are all women that like, in my opinion, should work the way that Willow Nightingale works. Like she, she's very much like a throwback to like an awesome Kong or an Aja Kong or like a monster ripper. Some of these like more physical, imposing, powerful women. That's the kind of work she's putting in. And like, I'm, I'm here for it. man. Yeah. It's been great. Then following that, we had the uh, first championship match of the evening. NJPW Strong openweight tag team titles on the line. The Bullet Club War Dogs team of Alex Coughlin and Gabe Kidd defeated Bishamon, Hiroki Goto, and Yoshihashi to become the new Strong openweight tag team champions. First thing I'd like to say, the heat in the building 
for the Bullet Club today, specifically this brand of Bullet Club War Dogs, is the kind of heat that people said the House of Torture would have once cheering mm. came back mm. to to <laughs> pro wrestling. But these guys don't do any of that shit. They don't, you know. Dude, they just come out here and kick ass. And it's they come awesome. out here and kick ass, but they not only are they kicking ass, but like they act like wild men before the match starts, and they are heels. They are doing everything in their power to be as hated as they possibly can be. They are not cool heels. No. They are down, dirty, throwback. Yeah, coming heels. out in the crowd, throwing chairs as they enter, you know, giving the one finger salute to everybody, just yelling, cursing, screaming. Just, yeah, just. It, it's awesome. And yeah. the crowd is not liking it. They're, they're booing them, and it's not a fun boo. It's a real boo. They're like, fuck these guys. <laughs> you betrayed Chinny Hong. <laughs> yeah, you turned on the LA Dojo. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this this match, um, you know, we didn't get to do a preview. This is one of the things. There, there were some surprises on these two shows I didn't expect, but this was not one of them. Once they had mentioned that they were doing the same tag match back to back for each title, it became very apparent that they were splitting the belts again. And, yeah. you know, the first night being the strong belts, you knew right away that the the younger, less established team is going to pick up the less prestigious titles and then go on to fail to obtain the IWGP titles the second night. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah, and like you mentioned, these guys, just wild men coming in here, attacking before the bell, hitting these guys uh, with the belts and you know making the ref you know, ring the bell. And so they got a hot start here. And then just throughout the match, they were just bulldozing these guys. Uh, Yoshihashi was the, the main victim here. Like they they pretty much isolated him, and there's a lot of great double team uh, maneuvers on him. Um, Goto would get back in uh, for some help spots and near falls, and try to get a little bit of momentum back. But really, it, it was all War Dogs here, and uh, Yoshihashi got back in there, and they just went to work on him, and they hit the, the double choke slam, and then the spiking uh, tombstone pile driver on Yoshihashi to get the win here. Now, the commentary did mention how, even though, like you mentioned, the War Dogs were very much on the offensive and in control a lot of the match, they still weren't as cohesive a team as you'd expect from, you know, from two guys that were that were winning a title on that evening. Mm-hmm. There were still like a lot of holes in their games, and those kind of created those opportunities for um goto to come in with the hope spots and and for yoshihashi to have comebacks and things like that so even though they did pick up the win here at the end of the day they it kind of showed that they weren't as cohesive a team as bishamon who'd been teaming together for quite a bit longer and they were sort of already setting the stage on commentary for you know basically that like hey even though they they were dominant tonight and they're gonna grow and they won the belts Bishamon are probably going to come back the next night and expose some of those holes in their game. Yeah. And then also, too, I think just from another from the other side of things, like they beat them once. So it's like, all right, maybe there's actually a possibility that the War Dogs could win the next night because they've kind of beat it and battered Bishamon. So even though there are holes in the game, Bishamon's coming in a little bit weaker. Potentially, they could beat those guys again. They also continued to beat on Yoshihashi after the bell, after they'd won the titles and, um, that was kind of like a adding insult to injury 
They sent in a show sponsor to give the belts to the War Dogs. Yeah, the, the like, LAC uh, sponsor, yeah. And they were like, uh, is this a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, those guys cut a, a very short and sweet promo. And, uh, you know, I love where Alex Coughlin is like, he's like, Goto Yoshihashi, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, he had a great uh, post-match promo, too. And he's just like, you know. All these years in the dojo, doing all these squats, like waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's why I don't do squats, bro. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Um, yeah, and then so the next match of the evening, uh, the semi-main event, we had the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Titles on the line as the defending champions catch two two of the United Empire defended against the Bullet Club War Dog junior team of clark connors and drilla maloney and to my surprise jeremy the bull club war dogs picked up more gold on this evening and dethroned catch 2-2 which once it happened i wasn't necessarily shocked but i don't know if we'd done a preview if i would have called this yeah i mean i we know that bull club war dogs are getting the hot push right now they're they're, they're the hot act but yeah, with Catch 2-2 being an established team and just getting the belts back from uh, the intergalactic jet setters, it, it, it might have seemed like, you know, right, you know, Catch 2-2s are more established. They're, they're going to kind of beat this newer team, and then maybe down the line, Maloney and Connors could uh, beat them. But no, they went with the kind of surprising uh, finish here with Connors and Drill Maloney. You know, they've only teamed up like two or three times and were able to kind of run through catch two two i mean you know it's the junior tag team titles and while there has been more stability to this division for a little while now you can never discount the idea of ghetto just going back to old faithful and bouncing those belts around uh the various different teams like he's prone to do and that's Mm -hmm. what we saw here um they, they did a great job on commentary though kind of explaining how you know, Drilla Maloney was originally, you know, uh, one of the third juniors on the United Empire team. He was kind of teamed up with uh, the Catch 2-2 guys and recently had turned his back on them, joined Bull Club War Dogs after him and Clark Connors found common ground. And, you know, Gato was able to persuade him to turn on those guys. And one thing that they really uh, harped on during the commentary was like, on in the match previously, the heavyweight tag team, lots of you know, non cohesion, miscommunication. Clark Connors and Drill Maloney, none of that was to be seen. They looked like they'd been teaming together for years, yeah, for years. They were extremely competent. Uh, this match was actually up until the main event, I thought the match of the night, um, just another in a long string of fantastic title matches from catch two, two and Clark Connors and drill Maloney looked like they belonged there. Um, In fact, this might be the best I've seen Clark Connors look in a new Japan ring. And I love the finish that drill Maloney and Clark Connors have now where drill puts them up in a, uh, a vertical suplex position. And then Clark jumps off the top ropes and spears them out of mid air. Bro, that's fucking incredible. That's great. Um, and like you mentioned too, with the the other Bull Club team, tons of heat here for this team as well. Um, yeah. And the match started off heated. You know, these guys were pushing each other in the face, and then it started off hot there. Wild brawl to 
And they were brought all into the crowd in Corkin, and then Akira went up. He did the big uh, crossbody off the, the tunnel there uh, to those guys. And so this was a wild, heated brawl before it got back into the ring, and um, we got some high pace, you know, junior action there as well. And you mentioned uh, the great finish there from uh, Drilla Maloney and Clark Connors there, the, the combo suplex spear. Puts these guys away and they become the new junior tag team champions. Yeah. And I wasn't, um, you know, I didn't know that that was their finisher. So I wasn't really expecting them to get the pinfall off of that, even though I thought the move was awesome. And I was like, oh, shit, that's a finish. Like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. We got new champs. And and the crowd was stunned. They were very quiet once this happened. Um, they kind of reacted more in the previous match a little bit, but this one, they were like kind of just dead quiet. Well, it was like a double deflation for them. It's like, all right, yeah, they just watched Bishamon get beat. And it's like, all right, well maybe catch two, two will win here. And then no, (laughs) they lost two. And like, it was like, Oh wow. It was just kind of, it's like kind of hush. Like, man, these guys are, you know, they're the real deal. And they just like mowed over two of our favorite teams here. Yeah. Um, And you know, one other thing I want to kind of point out here is, even though, yes, this was the IWGB titles, like during the course of these shows, they did a fantastic job sort of elevating not just the strong brand, but also the the relevancy of the strong titles, you know, because hmm. they, they met a lot on strong when they were over in America, when strong was like a weekly, you know, television show, but they haven't necessarily felt that way since they moved away from that format. But on these shows, like, the strong titles in particular felt like big deals, which, you know, it just hasn't always been that way. Yeah. I had a couple questions here. First from Heavenly Halliburton from the Discord. It says, of the new Bullet Club edition, who seems the most comfortable in their new role, in your opinion? Uh, You know what, man? I mean, I wouldn't really... Uh... Far be it for me to, like, give them a ranking or anything. I don't think that any of them feel out of place they all feel like they've always been heels and in fact i would go as far as to say um all four guys so far and you know what we could even throw this into like uh you know uh finley as well they all feel like they really are this way (laughs) (laughs) yeah I agree with you, but if I had to pick just one guy who I think was, like, the most comfortable, I would say Gabriel Kidd. Like, I feel like just his smack talk and just, like like you mentioned, like, I feel like the way he is right now is, like, him turned up to 10, like, unleashed, unfiltered, unhinged, and, like, I feel like a heel run for him was just definitely the right call, and I think he's really running with it. Yeah, um, definitely. But that's going to take us to our main one, event. One more question here from oh, uh, from the uh, the Discord okay. Daddy MJ does PR. He says, "Catch two MJ two. taking up more time." <laughs> no, I'm just playing. <laughs> he says, uh, "Catch two two tag team of the year." Tell me when I'm telling lies. Ooh, um, you know, I I mean, earlier in the year, I would have definitely said Aussie Open, but they're not here anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just. I think their argument is going to get, uh, you know, weaker and weaker as time goes on. And I think catch two, two has a very strong, compelling case to be tag team of the year and 
probably the last time a junior team really felt like they had a very strong case for being tag team of the year was probably the era of the Young Bucks. Yeah. I mean, as much as I loved uh, Rapongi 3K, they always seemed to kind of be overshined by other teams at the same time. And yeah, but Catch 2-2 doesn't feel like they have a heavyweight counterpart to kind of beat them right now. Yeah, I mean, you you could throw Bishamon out there, and they've been really Bishamon, good. Bishamon has a, I guess you're right, Bishamon does have an argument. Yeah, they, they've been really steady this year, but I feel like, I think to me, I feel like Catch 2-2 has peaked higher in their matches than Bishamon. Maybe. Uh, we'll have to look at those scores at the end of the year. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah. So that takes us to the main event. We had the Doomsday no disqualification tag team match. El Desperado and June Kasai defeat the notorious 187 Homicide and the Death Rider, John Moxley. You know, when you look at the history of professional wrestling and you look at the date July 4th, July 4th has never necessarily been a major, you know, like standout time for professional wrestling the same way like not the way that like say thanksgiving has in the past and some other holidays there have always been like fourth of july themed shows at, at various times but very rarely do those shows actually take place on july 4th um that being said there are a handful of really famous matches that kind of fill the annals of professional wrestling you can look at like say the Freebirds versus um actually they're uh in 83 as well as 84 the Freebirds versus the von erics uh the first one was the two out of three falls match the next year was the the no dq match that got five stars from dave and then um you know a little bit after that you can look at the first war games match at great american bash in 1987 and then after that, there's not that many really well-known, big, great um, matches that occurred on that date. I think that this tag team match very easily fits just as much as any other great match, including the first ever War Games match, including the very famous no DQ match from uh, between the Von Erickson and the Freebirds. Um, and for my money, I'm not going to say this was the best match of the two-day event but it was easily the most violent oh yeah it, it, it was crazy and before we uh get into talking about the stuff in the match um mjspr asked can the young boy give us a brief history of death matches in new japan pro wrestling oh <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I i'm not prepared for this um okay so you know new japan in the early days of New Japan, there were what some people would kind of classify as quote-unquote death matches. But they wouldn't be like death matches by like the same standard as you're used to from today. Like, um, And some of them I've actually never seen tape of. Like uh, Most of them, most of the famous ones, they're going to be Inoki matches. And I know that Inoki had a... Uh, he had a... Uh, like an, a, a nail board match where on the outsides of the ring, they put boards with nails, but really realistically in those types of matches, the guys didn't take big bumps into the nails. They were kind of there as like a, uh, a way to keep the, 
action in the rings that they didn't go out into the um, floor too much. And if they did, usually they avoided the the nail beds. And what would happen is like the heel would like kind of rake, you know, the baby faces face across <laughs> the, the nails on the floor. They didn't take bumps into the nails, really. Um, I know that that exists. I don't think I've ever seen tape of it. Um, I also have I've seen that there was a fence match that I've never seen the tape of it, but there's a fence match, which I think is like an early precursor to the steel cage match. But like IWE, which was in the seventies, the third big, um, you know, Japanese promotion, they were much more well-known for doing the steel cage matches. Like Russia Kimura was the, you know, very well known for doing the steel cage death matches and new Japan didn't really do those too much. Um, but as time moved on in like the eighties, you had like the Island death match that Anoki did with, um, Oh God, what's his name? Uh, Masa Saito. Mm-hmm. And then in the early nineties, they did another one of those with, uh, God, I'm not prepared for all uh, tiger jeet Singh versus, um, man, what's his name? Who's fuck. What's his name? Who's the dude that was in the Muta scale match with, uh, the great Muta. Hiroshi Hase, him and Hase, they did another um, island death match that that exists. But where where the death matches really started to peak was in the mid to late '90s when Onita uh, came over and he started doing the the crazy spectacle, exploding barbed wire time bomb death matches. And he had one with Chono, and he had one with Great Muda. Um, and then beyond that, there's not too many other crazy death matches i mean there's a few gimmick matches here and there that have existed um in japan um in new japan in particular uh but a lot of them are kind of kind of similar to like the texas death match that uh archer and uh moxley moxley did at wrestle kingdom like i know makabe's done a few i know tenzan's done a few um i know uh who's the guy that used to walk around with the the iron claw um iska yeah isika has done a few and most of those were they've done like chain matches they've also done like you know matches where it's like knockout submission only and they've they you know how they'll have certain matches that have a weird title yeah they've had a few of those at like wrestle kingdoms and stuff like that but um you know we're talking very few like true blue death matches um the the plunder matches that we've been seeing in new japan strong over the past you know three years are much more like clearly death match oriented than what we've seen in new japan and then um last year's match between desperado and john moxley in nashville was the first true death match in a really long time in new japan Oh, you know who else has done some some gimmick stuff is like uh, Yano mm. and uh, you know there were some strap matches that uh, that uh, Suzuki's done. Yeah. So, but you know, not not too many. Like realistically, oh, and and there were a couple cage matches. We watched that cage match with Chono and Takiyama. Mm, yeah. And then the, the the there was the one with uh, Murakami and Tanahashi. So. This stuff does exist, but it's very few and far between. And, you know, 
in Japan, they especially in New Japan, they'll they'll take a regular match and then just throw the title death match on it. But it it doesn't necessarily fit the same uh, definition that we in the West know as a death match. The only real quote unquote death matches that have existed were realistically like the Onita matches, and those those were like you know an invader guy coming in and having a few big spectacle matches and usually got his ass kicked because he's an <laughs> FMW guy. Yeah. But um, this stuff that John Moxley and Desperado have been introducing is way, way more over the top than anything we've ever seen in new Japan ever. We've, they've never had matches with forks and blades and barbed wire like that. This stuff has never been in new Japan before. Realistically. Yeah, so, I mean, let's talk about this match. You mentioned it. Yeah, Jun Kasai, he comes out here. First of all, huge, amazing pop for this guy. Uh, his music hits in the crowd. They're on their feet. They're going wild. They're singing a song, chanting his name, Kasai, Kasai. He comes out, this huge board full of forks, forks sticking out of the board. Desperado comes out. His mask's already ripped. He's got the guitar and the roses, um, John Moxley's out there. Homicide, they got all their their gimmick weapons too, and you know the barbed wire, uh, the butcher blade, like you mentioned. These guys were throwing out all the gimmicks here. It, it was wild. Yeah, I mean the crowd was definitely glad to see all four men, and they were very hot for for the matchup. But like you mentioned, Jun Kasai was the uh, the the biggest star of the evening. He got the biggest reactions, which I wasn't necessarily. I mean, I know he's a big you know, uh, you know, he's, he's very popular over there, but I just didn't anticipate on this evening that it would be such a big turnout for him specifically, which kind of showed me that, you know, that a lot of the crowd that was there was there for him specifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do know that he had his family there and for him, one reason I think they went all out during this match was because he's never worked for a major national Japanese wrestling promotion like new Japan before. So him making his debut in new Japan was like after all these years toiling on the indies and working internationally, like a huge deal for him. And I think it was a huge deal for the fans in attendance as well. Yeah. Putting him on that big, you know, new Japan stage and bringing his style of match. He does all these death matches. And, you know, he said in the, the pre-match when Desperado asked him to be his partner, he's like, I'll be your partner if we can do my style of, of match that, you know, it's never been done in New Japan before. So I, I hope I can do it. And they definitely did it here with this, uh, this doomsday, no DQ tag match, man. I, I flinched when they were doing the, the spots on the forks, man. Yeah, that was, I mean, you know, I don't know. I can't really, uh, relate. I've never been body slammed on a, a fork or a bed of forks, but I was like, God, how do you know that that's not going to go into somebody or whatever? Like you're taking a, a chance, but whatever. I mean, like, like, how, like, how do you work that? Like, you can't really like <laughs> gimmick forks. Like, you just take it. I don't know. Uh, it was really this match was crazy. I did see some people balking at the idea of these matches, and I saw some uh, pro elitist type individuals talking about how they've been turned off from, you know. The deathmatch style. I've even seen some people citing AEW as being a reason why they don't want to see the stuff. Like, bro, let me tell you something. They're not doing this shit in AEW. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of stuff you only see, like, in, in you know, the sleazy underground indies, like, 
you know, like a GCW or a CZW, or you see it in like freedoms. Like, yeah, you never see this in, in a new Japan ring. Right. Yeah. This was crazy shit. Yeah. June Kasai had the, you know, the big barber racer and was cutting homicide's head and homicide, you know, back by dropped him on the forks. Moxley slammed Desperado on the forks. Uh, mm. You know, the crowd was really into it. Uh, you know, lots of chance are out. Um, and then these guys are just trading blows. I, I didn't think it was pretty funny. Like one point in the match, they got in the corners and were doing like tags after they had they had been after they'd already been doing like tornado style for like ten minutes. They like got in the car. I never I never picked up on that. But that is funny. They were doing a tornado style match the whole time. There was never a legal man, and then they're tagging each other. Like why? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's they, so funny. These guys were running wild. Um, then honestly, G- got bust open bad. And oh. I don't know if that was because he already I. I, I I know the next night he pretty much had that that same uh, wound glued up. I don't did he did he come into that match with that wound or did he get it during the match? I'm not even sure. I um, mean, his head might have been already because you know he bleeds every week, so his head must have already been already jacked up and then got. It could have been. It might. I mean, this match was really violent, so yeah. it's possible. But yeah, every, all, all these guys got color. It was really nuts. And then you know, Homicide is a guy who in recent years. He's had some good matches. He works hard, but you could tell he's he's not quite what he used to be athletically. But you put him in this environment, he doesn't need to be a technical marvel because he can just go out there and like way laced or <laughs> lay waste to people, and that's what he was doing. And Jun Kasai is very much the same way. And they even had some high spots. Like they did crazy shit here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The board with the razors on it. Uh, Moxley drop kick Kasai into that, cut his back all up. Yeah, these guys were just doing a lot of this wild and crazy. Uh, Homicide had the, the chains out. Um, he was you know, whipping the guys with the chains at that garbage cans. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, like, but, don't get me wrong. We'll talk about the main event from the next night. And it was, in my opinion, equally as great, maybe even better. But it wasn't as violent as this one was. And you kind of almost have to wonder if, like, they, they couldn't top this because it was, like, such a spectacle. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, in the kayfabe, like, they'd already been through a huge war the night prior. That probably laid, uh, you know, played a, a little bit of a role into the psychology. But, man, like, this fucking ruled. If you haven't seen it, yeah, this it's was... not for the faint of heart, but it was awesome. Yeah, they, they, of course, there's the skewers out there. and uh, Oh, yeah, the skewers. Bashing the, the skewers in Moxley's head. And, yeah, then pretty much it was kind of a, a beat down on a homicide uh, towards the end there. Uh, Desperado was able to hit the uh, the pinche loco and uh, get the pin on homicide. Double pinche loco. The second one, he put him through the... Uh... Um, trash cans. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So man, just awesome. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy matchup. Um, and they get on the mic, cut the uh, the closing show promo, and yeah, just a an awesome way to uh, end the night here. Nice. So we jump into July fifth, the following evening. Uh, slightly larger crowd, but not by much. Uh, Ian Riccoboni and Chris Charlton on the call. Uh, we had a pre-show six-man tag team match where Master Wato, Oleg Bolton, and Ryuzuki Taguchi took on Dragon Libre, Rekka, and Takahiro Katori. Very much similar to the same antics that we'd seen the night prior. 
A lot of the match kind of revolving around the stuffed animal once again. Uh, the only difference here was the Freedoms team eventually procured the, the stuffed animal and, and saved him and were able to get him away from the filthy Hantai team. But ultimately, the Hantai team were successful in in this endeavor. They won the match. I don't remember how, but they did. Yeah, again, very similar to, like you mentioned, to the opening match from night one. Fun opener, you know, get, get in the crowd, just kind of, you know, ready for some action. Um, oh, one, one thing I did want to say. Watto is still coming out here with the flag and the fucking trophy. Best the Super <laughs> Juniors trophy, right? Yeah. Uh, I know that I'm not, like, a quote-unquote, like, a real pro wrestler, right? But sometimes I think about what these guys should be doing and, like, What's the best thing that you could possibly do if you were the best of the Super Junior winner, but then you lost your title shot, right? Mm-hmm. Would it be to continue to come out with that, or would it be to get rid of the title or the, the trophy? Because, I mean, ultimately, you did win the Super Juniors. You want people to know that that's a big accomplishment, but you also didn't win your title challenge. <laughs> so you're in this kind of weird predicament. What you got to do there, Jeremy... If you want it to matter, is you need to cut an emboldened promo telling people why you don't deserve to carry that trophy until you win that title. Mm. And you like make your intentions known that you're putting the trophy away so you can put your attention and focus on on the title and then give yourself a storyline reason and make it important why you're not, you know, carrying the trophy anymore. But they're not doing that. They just got the guy walking out there with the trophy still. And it's like, he looks like a geek again. <laughs> and, and, this, and the whole point of winning the tournament is to make him a star. He was in a five-star match in the finals. And everyone's forgot about it because, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, that, that time match is so soon. You know, maybe they could have held it off to give him some time to, to come out with it. But, yeah, it's it's not a good look. Ultimately, as a wrestler, you need to be thinking of the best course of action to get yourself over. And if you're going to lose, you need to find a way to get your heat back on the way down. And continuing to carry that fucking trophy out there is just a reminder of your failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 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 cut a, so cut a promo about it and let the people know what your intentions are and move forward as a character. Like, don't just keep carrying the shit out. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my gosh. <laughs> Anyways. Um, to start the evening off uh, earlier the previous night, they had advertised that Oscar Luebe would be facing off against Jared Kratos in singles action. As we mentioned on the review of the previous night, he had that hematoma. It opened up. Ultimately, uh, the medical staff deemed him unfit to uh, compete in action the following evening. So Oscar Luebe had a mystery opponent, which ended up being Satoshi Kojima. That's right, the, the leader of the Bread Club, the strongest arm, Satoshi Kojima, coming in for the save once again. Um, and this was, you know, quick five-minute Young Lion versus New Japan dad opener. Oscar Lube got to, you know, fire up, kind of show his fighting spirit. Um, but at the end of the day, he ate a big uh, lariat, a big strong arm, and Kojima got the win here. Yep. Uh, fun match. Five minutes, 23 seconds. We move on to tag team action as the former 
Junior Champions Catch 2-2 were in action, and they defeated the team of Homicide and Ryohei Oiwa, 12 minutes and 9, se- nine seconds. So yeah, another uh, fast-paced, fun matchup here. So Catch 2-2 coming out of the, the loss to Connors and Maloney the previous night, you know, trying to get back. Some momentum here, trying to get back in contention for the titles. They did tease on commentary if Homicide and Oiwa won, they could potentially, you know, challenge the junior tag team titles. And again, with being New Japan strong and Homicide being on the team, like there was this kind of, you know, sense of doubt maybe you know, that team could win and be the next challengers for Connors and Maloney. Bro, Homicide, former world NWA junior heavyweight champion. Yeah, former Ring of Honor world champion. Junior. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so, but it's a really fun matchup here. Also, like you mentioned, Homicide's not, this is not, you know, 05, 06 Homicide. Um, yeah, but you know what? He was busting out some of the, uh, the the technical catches catch stylings, which you didn't necessarily expect after the evening that he had the previous, you know, match. Yeah, before this, did hit a nice T bone on TJP. He busted up the the Eddie Guerrero three amigos uh, suplexes as well. So uh, really good stuff there. Uh, but of course, came on to the end there. Oiwa gets back in, hits that great uh, gut wrench suplex for the near fall. Uh, Homicide gets TJP tied up in the STF. Uh, Homicide starts bleeding from his uh, his cut the end from the previous night. And then um, catch you two. They hit their uh, double team X Factor uh, face plant on Oiwa, and then they hit the knee knee double knees, and TJP pins Oiwa to get the win. Following the match, you know there was uh, a lot of allusions on commentary to the fact that TJP and Homicide had come up uh, on the Indies together and known each other from you know uh, TJP spending time in the original LA Dojo and that sort of thing. And I don't know if you caught this, Jeremy, but Francesco Akira and TJP paid him respect. They bowed to him and kind of gave him honor. And that's not necessarily something you'd expect from a heelish junior tag team like Catch-2-2. So something tells me that, um, you know, with them being on the opposite side of Bull Club War Dogs, they're kind of in a quasi-tweener kind of face-leaning role now. Yeah. And I feel like United Empire has been kind of leaning that way beginning of this year with Osprey facing Kenny and Kenny being more of the heel in the beginning of the feud. Um, and since then, these guys, they haven't really been super heel because they've been feuding with Bull Club and TMDK. And so they've kind of been this kind of tweener-ish for, for this year. They vacillate. You know what I mean? Like, they come and go because after after Wrestle Kingdom, they, like, were trying to get their heat back and, and were, you know, working heel in that um, new beginning tour. But... I also think it depends on which facet of the group we're talking about because like Jeff Cobb and, and you know, master uh, or um, great O'Con and great O'Con, like they clearly work heel most of the time. And then like catch the two were definitely working heel up until this past tour. But then like, it kind of depends, you know, like Aussie open weren't really working heel and you know, it, it kind of just depends on which members are doing what, at different points of the year. Yeah. So, uh, but, um, we ended up the next match of the evening. We had the rematch between the new, uh, strong openweight tag team champions as the bull club war dogs, Clark Connors and drill and Maloney. Oh, my bad. This I'm reading. The wrong thing. 
Um, the new IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Clark Connors and Drill and Maloney, they uh, were set to take uh, take on the Chaos Team of Rocky Romero and Yo, former members of Rapongi 3K. And before this match started, Rocky Romero and Yo got on the um, the mic and basically talked about how, you know, congratulations, you guys won the Junior Tag Team titles, but he pointed out that Yo has held the Junior Tag Team titles five times and rocky romero has held the titles eight separate times and he was like i kind of feel like we got some uh <laughs> you know we we're, we're a little bit long in the tooth when it comes to this sort of thing and maybe you guys should just give us a title shot right here right now and at first like you know bull club war dogs seemed like they didn't want to do They're it like, nah 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 <laughs> uh, Maloney's like, I was drinking too much last night. Like, <laughs> and then like Chairman Sugabayashi's down there, and like Rocky's trying to be like title shot, title shot, and like he's like looking really confused. He doesn't know what the fuck's going on. And then uh, eventually he like goads them into uh, accepting it, and like they're like, fuck it, let's just do it. And it's like, all right, suddenly we have a title shot out of nowhere. Yeah. So, uh, fun uh, tag team matchup here, man. That the team of Maloney and Connors, man, they work so well together with this being, mm-hmm. you know, only teaming for such a, a handful of times. And uh, they did a great job here, really, you know, dominating Yo and Romero here. Uh, I mean, Rocky and Yo got some spots in, but I feel like they were just kind of, they were getting overpowered um, by Maloney and Connors throughout this match. And uh, once again, we're able to hit that, um, that big um, suplex spear combo for the pin. Yeah. Uh, Rapongi 3K forever? I guess not. <laughs> but yeah, this was very, very good. Um, not as good as the previous night's um, title match, but you know, we didn't expect to get two junior tag team title matches on you know subsequent nights back to back. So that was really, really cool, and kind of you know went a long way to establish uh, Book Club War Dogs as like the preeminent champions now. So yeah. Um, Next match of the evening, we had Alex Zane and Lance Archer. They took on the TMDK team of Bad Dutito and Kosei Fujita, and they picked up the victory at 9 minutes and 31 seconds. Following this match, Alex Zane and Lance Archer got on the, the mic, and they announced short and sweet, we are now Murder Sauce, and we will be back. And I was like, holy fuck, Like this team rules. Yeah, I mean, these guys... Put them against uh, Bishamon. Put them against War Dogs. Like these guys need to be in tag team title matches. Um, again, just some great double team combos here. Uh, crowd, uh, you know, pops huge once again for Archer coming out, and also for Zayn. Remember last year's Super Junior Tour, uh, Alex Zayn got extremely over with the Japanese audience, so you know they're definitely into him and Archer teaming up here together. And once again, um, kind of the, the creative offense between uh, Zayn and Archer, or Archer doing the, the choke slam uh, moonsault uh, for Zayn onto Vegeta, and you know doing a lot of spots, kind of throwing uh, Zayn into his opponents. And uh, Badu Tito, you know, he was trying to prove that he was as strong as Archer, and trying to have some you know showdowns with him, but uh, wasn't working out too well for uh, Badu Tito, especially with the, uh, the separated shoulder, a, a back a black hole slam from Archer at one point in the match, and. Zayn hits the, the forward roll kick to Vegeta, and then Archer hits him with a huge lariat. One, two, three. Monster sauce, murder sauce. They uh, they get the win here. Yeah. Um, this team really blew me away. They do a lot of really cool, innovative stuff. And, like, 
obviously Lance Archer is known for doing a lot of highly athletic big spots for a monster wrestler of his you know stature. But then once you see Alex Zane next to him, and I'm sure he's probably put on a little bit of size in the interim since like say last year's super juniors, but he's not that far off in size from Lance Archer. And then you're like, dang, this guy's doing some really insane and incredible, you know, high flying stuff too. And they've got the size as well as the high flying stuff going. And, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and say they're as good of a team as Aussie open. Cause that's kind of crazy. But like, you know, we talked about how Aussie open was a team that very much like kind of had size, but also athleticism sort of in the same vein as like, uh, the, uh, you know, like war machine from the past. Well, this like murder sauce team could very well. I don't know if I'm, I'm not in love with that name, to be honest with you. It, it screams WWE. We're going to just miss, you know, mash your nicknames ma- together. Yeah. yeah. Mash the names, the nicknames together, whatever. But putting that aside, the actual work, they are very imposing and very uh, impressive as a team. They can do a lot of really cool and inventive stuff. And it's very fun and exciting. And I think it's a great way for a guy like Alex Zane, who he's, we've talked about it before. He's over the Japanese audience like him, the office likes him, but I don't know if they see him as someone that can just trend. He's too big for junior, but he's not a known commodity enough to where he can just transition seamlessly to heavyweight. Mm -hmm. And then Lance Archer, he's been known for so long that he kind of needs something to do. The tag team division is, very much in his wheelhouse. He's been there a million times before. Yeah. This just feels like a great vehicle for both guys to kind of continue to work in Japan. It makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah. I also thought Archer was a good tag team wrestler. Uh, Also, you had him and uh, Dayboy Smith together when he was in TNA with Kid Cash. That was a fun tag team there as well. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, putting him in a team is a good way to utilize him and his skill set and pairing him with Alex Zane. That could be a fun team that could show up in World Tag League later this year, and it would be a good way, like you mentioned, to kind of slowly kind of integrate Zane into transitioning into a heavyweight. Next match of the evening, we had the six-man tag team match as Team Filthy, Jarrell Nelson, Royce Isaacs, and Tom Lawler. They took on the team of Hiroshi Tanahashi, the DKC, and Tomohiro Ishii, and the Hantai team picked up the win here. 13 minutes and 10 seconds. So uh, once again, Philly Tom coming out with the uh, you know the American trunks, and this time uh, Nelson and Isaac they had their uh, you know their USA gear and jackets uh, all decked out. Uh, Kratos did join them on um, the entrance, and he uh, joined commentary for the match of uh, Ian and Charlton. Uh, but these guys, you know, being what doing what Team Philly does, you know, kind of being goofy heels over the top with uh, their their USA gear. Um, so fun, uh, six man matchup here. Also, we know the kind of the, the history with, uh, Ishii and Tanahashi and, you know, Ishii doesn't really want to team Tanahashi, but, you know, they've been working really well together, um, as the never six man champions. And if team filthy potentially won this match, they could have, you know, put themselves into contention for a never open weight six man title match against Ishii, Tanahashi and Kazuchika Okada. Uh, but that was not the case here. They could not uh, overpower this team of uh, Ishii and Tanahashi and uh, the DKC. 
Yeah, they weren't able to beat them. Um, like you mentioned, they came out in the all red, white, and blue gear. I do want to throw a shout out to Team Filthy, though, because um, this was the first time Jarrell Nelson and Royce Isaacs have been able to come over as a tag team and really work in Japan. And it's been long overdue and something that I thought was uh, one of the, the big benefits of doing these strong shows. Mm-hmm. And you could tell that how hungry that team is. They always have excelled and really um worked hard and you know basically put their best foot forward but they they really did a lot here in this match and i mean even tanahashi who you know we've had some things to say in the recent past about um where he is physically um as far as his health is concerned but i felt like he was putting in the effort to keep up with their work rate level in this match and everybody did a great job. It was, it was probably bet. That's one thing I, I noticed was, um, you know, this matchup would have fit just fine on your standard road to style tag team match, mm-hmm. but it wasn't worked at that level. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. was worked with a, a lot more pre- like importance and precision and the guys were out there killing themselves to kind of get a look from the office and a look from the crowd. And, and there was a hunger that was there and it was a uh, kind of refreshing to see it. They weren't just doing the same old hat that you're used to seeing from a road to match. Yeah. And I think we've, we've seen this from team filthy on a lot of these big strong shows, you know, most of the time they're in some kind of, you know, six man, eight man, 10 man tag, multi-man matchup. And it ends up usually being a really fun match. Cause these guys that go out there they know um, how to get over. They know their characters, and they go out there and they, they work really hard and kill it every time they're in these situations. And like you mentioned, these guys are desperate to kind of establish themselves so they they can be brought back for like a, a world tag league and be you know an established heavyweight tag team in New Japan. Uh, Royce Isaacs, I feel like he's been putting on a ton of muscle mass. He just looks uh, completely jacked up um, from the last time we've seen him. You know, one other thing, too, and I, I, I think we should probably mention it. Different look from Royce Isaacs. Uh, he shaved his head, and I think he was probably suffering uh, a little bit there from, like, hair loss. And he kind of just went full bore and embraced it and shaved off the head, the hair. And as someone who is definitely – I mean, like, I, I'm not going to sit here and be, like, I'm balding or anything like that. But, like, I'm getting up there in age, and, like, so I'm, I'm noticing some differences. And I'm doing <laughs> everything in my power. <laughs> I mean, I've got a full, I've got a full routine, Jeremy. I mean, like I'm taking pumpkin seed oil. Mm. I got DHT blocking shampoo. I'm on the minoxidil. I take uh, biotin. I do everything, right? Keeping the hair and game I mean, strong. I'm trying, trying, but I've got. I the 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 next thing is like I'm not going. I, if it gets to the point where I can't save this head of hair. Then I'm going the Jason Statham slash Royce Isaacs route, and I'm just going to shave my head entirely, completely bald like Boss Root. But the thing is, when you do that, you have to have an incredible body to overcompensate the lack of hair <laughs> like Royce Isaacs. You can't look like a slob and shave your head because at that point, it's negative, negative, and it doesn't cancel <laughs> each other out. And this is something I've, I've been thinking about for a long time. Okay. This isn't new. This isn't a bit for the show. Like, you know, this is real life. It's a shoot. Listen, I work on my physical fitness, right? And I want to have like a great body and like it it hasn't happened yet, but I'm getting there. I'm making progress. But if I lose my hair, (laughs) 
brother, I'm getting on the gas. Okay, <laughs> let me tell. Oh uh, man, I will. I, I will be fully on the gas. Trust me. Okay, you got you got to have a hair match if you before you shave it. <laughs> get get back in the dojo in the side dojo. Tell tell Matt you need to have a hair match. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even know if there is a side dojo. Oh, the, the wrestling lab, whatever, whatever they're called, something, something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's looking great, and I, I'm I'm glad that you know this man embraced it because he's looking he's looking fantastic. So yeah. Um, uh, before the next match, we did have a, a graphic on the screen that popped up uh, announcing oh, yeah. Wrestle Kingdom 18 coming January 4th. Uh, what do you think about the uh, the logo for this uh, upcoming Wrestle Kingdom? Logo's fine. It looks like we're just having one night. And uh, I thought it was surprising they decided to announce it on this show in particular, but that's cool. Um, it did make me feel a little old because, bro, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the first Wrestle Kingdom we reviewed on this show was Wrestle Kingdom 12. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So we're coming up on six. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we've, we've been doing this for quite some time. Okay. And well, that takes us to the um, the stronger portion of the finale of the show so starts off with our championship series we had a singles match between uh the defending njpw strong women's champion willow nightingale as she defend defended her title against julia of stardom and uh julia was able to upend willow nightingale and take the title off of her 13 minutes and 29 seconds so we have a new champion here yeah, and with the Julia winning the title, that kind of makes you think, you know, what were the plans, you know, coming out of the, the Willow and mercedes Monet match uh, from the, you know, crowning the first strong women's champion. You know, clearly all signs were pointing that Mercedes was going to win that match before getting hurt in, in the match. And so would we have gotten, uh, you know, Mercedes versus Julia here on this show? And then, you know, will this lead to uh, Julia versus Mercedes down the line? But um, not to uh, discredit this match. This was a, a very hard-hitting match. And like we uh, mentioned in the previous match, and you were talking about Willow's wrestling style in Japan, in New Japan, she kind of is is, un- is able to unleash more of that hard-hitting uh, kind of bruiser style. And we saw that here. And, you know, commentary, commentary mentioned, you know, Julia, she is one of the more harder-hitting on the stardom side, one of the quote-unquote stronger women on, on the stardom roster you know there's not a lot of women that are you know that have the size and strength of willow so julia's used to kind of having that power advantage a striking advantage and so really being tested here uh with willow and you know they were trading shots and willow was a um, big spine buster big lariats um i do feel like there was a little bit of miscommunication between them i don't know if that was like you know the, the whole the, kind of the, the language barrier but it did kind of seemed that like they were quite on the same page at some points in the match. Uh, but overall, I mean, very hard hitting, lots of uh, great power moves from uh, both women. Yeah, I think the general story, and, and, and you did a great job there, Jeremy. Um, the general story was that Julia, a lot of her offense, like you mentioned, is power offense based. Um, and I, I'm not an expert on on her wrestling style. I've only seen her wrestle a handful of times, but they mentioned a lot of her signature moves require, you know, their power moves. And she wasn't able to lift Willow Nightingale to do a lot of those moves. So it kind of negated a lot of her offense. 
And so at that point, Julia was definitely targeting the legs and trying to look for a submission for a lot of this match. And mm-hmm. uh, conversely, Willow Nightingale was uh, able to play the power game against Julia, which is something Julia is not used to being thrown around and kind of manhandled. Um, I think where Willow sort of messed up going down the stretch was she played the striking battle game with uh, Julia and that probably was her undoing. Yeah. Dude, Julia and was slapping the crap out of her. <laughs> they, they both were hitting hard, but just in the kayfabe, it seemed to be that Julia was getting the better of those exchanges. Mm-hmm. And um, throughout the match, Willow kept going to the top rope and they mentioned how, you know, she's, she's not afraid to high fly. And they also mentioned how at the top rope was where she was able to kind of hurt Mercedes quote unquote, and, you know, kind of solidify that victory. And that sort of played against her here because she went for the, uh, the moonsault. She missed the moonsault. That, that was a big uh, detriment to her. And then eventually down the stretch after Julia had kind of softened her up, she was able to start hitting power moves on her. And when she was, uh, they were up on the top rope, she hit her, I don't even know what it was. It was like an arm trap DDT off the top rope. A a butterfly suplex. Okay. That was pretty crazy. And I didn't feel like uh, Willow's uh, landing was necessarily the best off that. She kind of came down (laughs) a little harsh. Yeah. But um, ultimately, Julia was able to hit her with the Northern Lights bomb, uh, like the Dangerous Queen, and picked up the one, two, three here. And so Julia is the new reigning champion. And you know, Jeremy, I think that this probably opens up a, a bit of a bigger discussion where it's like, okay, just last year at the end, and we're talking at the end of last year. So just in November, we unveiled a new IWGP women's title and we had the whole tournament and everything like that. And everything was rolling. Eventually that title found its way around the waist of Mercedes Monet. And then she ended up in stardom and dropped the belt to... Mayu Iwatani, who is the current reigning champion. I don't know what's going on with that title. We haven't heard anything about that title since it was dropped to Mayu. And it's, you know, it's kind of an afterthought here in New Japan. And in the meantime, they held this other tournament to try and put the strong title on uh, Mercedes, and it landed on Willow Nightingale. Clearly, uh, that was not the plan. So now they've audibled and they've put this title on Julia. So we've got two New Japan women's titles on stardom contracted wrestlers at the same time. And I don't know why they both exist to begin with, other than the fact that they were both pretty much generally created for Mercedes Monet, who is not really active in the company currently because she's out injured. And it's it's just a weird situation. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of talked about this before, but I mean, I feel like it would have made more sense if Strong was continuing to do the weekly TV tapings to have the create a title and you know integrate women into the weekly TV show. But now they're doing these monthly, semi-monthly, you know, big pay-per-view shows. Uh, I don't understand why they couldn't just fly whoever the IWGP Women's Champion is over. And use that as a title that would be on both shows because initially they said that the whole purpose of the IWGP Women's Title was to have more women's matches in America and Japan, um, and that title was supposed to be kind of bouncing back and forth. And now we have this strong 
women's title. Um, so yeah, I don't really understand exactly what the difference is, what the game plan is going to be. I do know for Julia, she has been saying a lot in interviews that she wants to wrestle internationally. So she sees this win and this title as her ticket to come to America and do more stuff, which is cool. And we know that there, there will be more, you know, new Japan America shows happening this summer and probably going into the fall. So we'll probably see Julia here in the States uh, pretty soon. But then again, kind of, you know, what's happening with Mayu, that title, it wasn't defended at Dominion, uh, you know, which was the last, you know, really big new Japan show. And, Right, we're going into G one season. Um, you know, we're not gonna. I, I doubt we're gonna see that. You know, for the next couple of months. So, yeah, what exactly is the game plan with these titles? It, it feels like the IWGP title became a worthless title to New Japan because they had to give it to someone other than Mercedes, and they had no more. They no longer had intentions to promote, uh, like Mayu Iwatani as champion after after you know, putting the belt on her. So they're like, all right, we'll bump that. We'll just create a new belt. But then they weren't able to put it on Mercedes. And, you know, I'm not a stardom expert, but I heard, you know, when uh, Julia was recently the the red belt champion, she dropped that title to Tam Nakano. And a lot of people were not happy with that decision and kind of uh, bewildered because they thought she was going to have this long lengthy reign as champion. And that didn't happen. And now, now she's the strong champion. And it, it, it is weird because you've got two new Japan titles sitting on stardom talent. And I don't know how it's going to shake itself out because it feels superfluous for them to have both of those belts in existence when they don't even have any real women contracted to the company. It feels like at, best they should maybe just have one title but with all these politics in play they're not going to and especially since they just launched a second new title you know they're not going to merge them this soon but there's really no point to them both existing it's very weird and uh i I wouldn't be surprised if one of them just like kind of disappears (laughs) yeah yeah Um, and you know now i've seen um you know people from the company defending this on Twitter and in news releases and kind of saying, you know, we're, we're trying to build up the strong brand. And so we have a strong, you know, men's title tag title. So we need a strong women's title. But I think, you know, with doing again, doing the monthly shows, I, I don't, I don't, I don't even think they need the strong and strong tag titles anymore at this point. Um, so I just don't get kind of the direction of a strong brand and, and what the titles really mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 I don't know if I 100% agree, although I see where you're coming from. Um, I think some of my opinions on that might have changed a bit with these shows. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even opposed to them having a strong women's title. I'm opposed to them having an IWGP women's title and a strong women's title all in the space of just a few months. And they don't have any contracted women. And the whole situation is really weird. And it's like, well, yeah, like what is going to happen with the IWGP women's title? Wasn't that supposed to be on big shows? Wasn't that supposed to be cross-promoted? I, I don't know. It, it's very strange. So I guess we'll just leave it at that and see where it goes from there. But um, next match of the evening, we had the IWGP tag team titles on the line as the uh, reigning champions, Bishamon, defended their titles against the new strong openweight tag team champions, the Bull Club War Dogs, Alex Coughlin and Gabe Kidd. And Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi were able to successfully 
defend these titles that on this evening, 11 minutes and 29 seconds, they retained with the Shoto. Yeah, so these guys, they picked up where they left off the previous night. Uh, they started brawling, you know, right from uh, Bishamon's entrance, and these guys were uh, brawling all around the ringside and uh, finally got into the ring. Um, once again, an- another very hard-hitting uh, matchup. I think I like the, the first night's match uh, a little bit better than this matchup here, but uh, kind of like we were talking about from the previous match, I feel like Bishamon were able to kind of recoup and kind of use their experience teaming together to uh, kind of outmaneuver the kind of like wild chaos style of uh, Coughlin and uh, Gabe Kidd here. Um, and that kind of came down to the end where they were able to uh, get the Shoto and get the win. Yeah, um, I thought that the match the previous evening was, even though they were kind of similar, I thought the the first night's match was uh, somewhat better. Uh, looks like the, the the inmates on the cage match rating system also agree. Um, but two very solid matches, and uh, Bishamon were able to pick up the win here and kind of prove that they're still the dominant champions, I guess. Yeah, uh, the Bull Club War Dogs did a cool uh, double team muscle buster at uh, one point in this match that I really liked. So. You know they they're really starting to kind of gel as a team and kind of create some cool double team maneuvers. Um, and so yeah, I'm curious to see you know kind of what the game plan is going to be for, for them going forward now as the, the strong openweight tag team champions and what the strong schedule will look like. This um, well, that's, both of these guys are in the G1, so um, it's when we'll see them defend in a while. So yeah, kind of curious to see what the, the next uh, steps are for these guys. Awesome. So then the semi-main event, we had the NJPW strong openweight title uh, on the line as Kenta, the current reigning champion, as well as the uh, the reigning Defy champion, defended his title against Eddie Kingston, and he was unsuccessful in retaining his title. Eddie Kingston is the new NJPW strong openweight champion, 13 minutes and 30 seconds as he uh, won the title with a uh, Northern Lights uh, driver just like Julia over Willow Nightingale. So the same move used twice on the same evening to win both the men and the women's openweight titles. Yeah, uh, good matchup here. Uh, like you mentioned in the previous match, just how important it was for A. Kingston to finally get to the, the big stage in Japan, how much he loves uh, New Japan, All Japan, is a student of the game. And to, you know, be in the semi-main event of this big sold-out Corken Hall show and then end up winning a New Japan title was a uh, big deal to him. And um, like I said, good matchup here. Uh, beginning of the match, um, kind of Eddie kind of had the better of Kenta until he uh, chopped the ring post and then, you know, Kenta started working on the arm. Also, the arm was also damaged coming into this match due to uh, the beatdown from the Blackpool Combat Club on Dynamite last Wednesday when they uh, they pulmonized his arm. Um, so the arm was already kind of weak coming in here, and he missed the chop and hit the, the, the guardrail, and um, Kente was able to work on it from there. Uh, then, of course, we got, uh, with this being a 2023 Kenta match, we got the ref bump, and uh, he gets the title belt and you know tries to hit him with the belt, but then the ref gets the belt and he grabs the, the Defy title and hits Eddie with that. Gets the uh, double stomp for a, a 
believable near fall there. Kingston locks in the stretch plum and tries to get Kenta to tap from there. Um, Kenta comes back for Shining Wizard. Kent, uh, Kingston comes back for Inziguri. It's the the Yurikin back fist for another great near fall. It's another back fist clothesline, and then like you mentioned, it's the Northern Lights bomb, and he gets the the big win, the twenty one year journey. You know, he finished his story, Eddie Kingston. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, Eddie Kingston, he's, he always gives 110% and that was definitely the case here. And he seemed to be even more motivated. I mean, he's been so gung ho working for new Japan, just in the States alone, just the idea of working for representing new Japan, but actually doing it in Japan was even the next step and uh, a culmination of his dreams and aspirations and i felt like kenta we didn't get any of the bullshit uh you know that we were used to seeing from kenta these days he went out there and did his best to kind of turn back the clock and, and work as stiff a style as he possibly could and kind of match eddie kingston's strike for strike uh we even got uh a little bit of coup de gras action from kenta with the double you know double foot stomp off the top rope at one point but um very good, very hard-hitting uh, match. I'd go close to four stars on this one. I thought it was very awesome and very emotional. Um, but ultimately, seeing Eddie you know, win his first major singles title in Japan, and yeah, it is the strong openweight title. And maybe at this point, it's not necessarily seen as a, a necessary belt. But we've seen how uh, Tom Lawler, during his reign, how he was able to elevate the importance of this title, you know, month after month with all these incredible title defenses. And then the, the very um, emotional storyline between him and Fred Rosser and how that culminated in Fred Rosser obtaining the title and that kind of elevated things. And, and then um, now to see Eddie sort of take the, the, the strap as well. And yeah, there are political reasons behind this, I believe. And me and Jeremy talked about this off the air. Like it makes all the sense in the world that Eddie going into the G1 being an AEW guy probably needed to have a little bit of protection so that some of his favorable booking would be plausible. And him coming into G1 with the title is going to be the perfect, you know, kind of uh, plausible deniability for why he gets a little bit of favorable booking. But he's definitely going to take a loss from somebody in that block. That's going to be the next viable challenger, and that's going to and that block is full of killers. So whoever that is, whether that's a Shingo or an Ishii or something, it's going to be really awesome. Um, even if it's like Aaron Hinari or or Evil or whoever, I don't know. But um, the post match here with Eddie, uh, you know, near tears, near breaking down, and Homicide hugging him, and they're crying, and and the crowd is going wild. Like that was a really special moment in. Uh, New Japan this year, which New Japan's just been on fire this year, and this was just another of those great moments. And uh, it it did make me rethink a little bit the importance of these titles because it's like, yeah, maybe they're not a hundred percent necessary, but the strong brand does have a purpose and a place. And this these shows kind of show that to me a, a bit. And I feel like uh, this title win, you know, was meaningful to some degree. Yeah, it's definitely a big moment for Eddie and yeah, Homicide coming out and celebrating, saying you, know, you did it. I loved when he 
he tried to raise the injured arm, and he's like, ah! <laughs> yeah, he kept selling the injured arm. Uh, but yeah, yeah just def- like just like Brian Danielson. <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely a, a big moment here for for Eddie. And uh, yeah, I think again, like you mentioned, with like Philly Tom, it's definitely the man that makes the title here. And I think that um, Eddie Kingston, if they allow him, could really help elevate this title and make it a, a prestigious title in a new Japan. Yeah. I guess this is just, you know, new Japan, the company, new Japan strong, the place where people that you want to see pushed in AW and ring of honor who don't get pushed can come over here and get belted up. <laughs> oh man. Willow, <laughs> Eddie, <laughs> who's next. <laughs> That takes us to our main event of the evening, the final death match. And this was singles action as John Moxley took on El Desperado. This was a rematch of the death match that they had in uh, New Japan Strong the year prior in Nashville. And uh, this one was really crazy. And for my money, the match of uh, the two-night event. And yeah, John Moxley defeated El Desperado 20 minutes and 33 seconds. And... This was much, even though, make no bones about it, this definitely fit the criteria of what most Western fans would classify as a quote-unquote death match because it did have, you know, razor wire, or not razor wire, but it had barbed wire and it had all the, the makings of a, of a very bloody, violent death match. There were forks and things like that. But um, this was much less worked in the style of a death match, the way that the previous night's match was, and much more worked stylistically to the layout of a big singles New Japan house-style match in just mm. terms of match structure. And uh, it was very wild. These guys brawled all over the building. We saw tables. We saw chairs. We saw uh, trash cans and uh, barbed wire, barbed wire boards and forks. And uh, these guys definitely went at it. And um, the, the the tail end of the match was very, very, very emotional. And uh, they started to almost kind of, uh, I mean, Jeremy, I went into this match thinking there's no way that Desperado could beat John Moxley. And uh, they didn't 100% get me to suspend my disbelief because I kind of always knew that John Moxley wasn't going to job to Desperado no matter what happened. <laughs> Especially considering, and they brought this up on commentary, Desperado's never won a singles death match in his entire career. Yeah, he's only had a handful of them, but every time he's and and he's becoming known for them, but he's never won one. He loses every time he's in that environment, and there's almost sort of like a like a fighting spirit sort of element to like he just keeps coming back for more punishment so he can grow and like learn and become stronger but like he's not necessarily successful in these environments and um i believe this is the last one we're ever going to see between him and john moxley but he was not able to beat john moxley in this evening he came close a few times but ultimate and he kicked out of a uh you know the the version the death rider version one variation not the angle not the angled version but uh he did kick out of one but ultimately yeah, the shooter version, but he ended up uh, being defeated in the end by the high-angled Death Rider for the one, two, three. Yeah, this was another uh, crazy match up here. I mean, from the beginning of the match, they already had the the barbed wire boards uh, set up in the corners of the ring. 
Uh, like I mentioned, Desperado, he comes out again with the uh, the guitar and the roses, kind of harkening back to when he first came uh, into New Japan uh, pro wrestling, and both of them coming out of the crowds just kind of gave you this kind of big fight feel, and then from there, yeah, all the plunder. You know, we had the uh, the presence of the the Japanese tables. Um, they did a spot where uh, Moxley tried to uh, elbow drop, you know, through definitely through the tables, but of course, you know. Strong style table, <laughs> they don't break. And he, he he tried a couple times to put him through it, but uh, yeah, that table was not breaking. Um, and you know, they say it's uh, more painful when the table doesn't break uh, on, on spots like that. Uh, yeah, that strong style table, bro. Well, you know what? I don't know because those those tables are so stiff. Like I don't even know if it if it actually hurts worse or not. <laughs> he just kind of rolled through, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, Moxie pilmanized the the ankle. He got the fork out and was stabbing. Uh, Despy with the fork, whipped him into the barbed wire board, um, pile driver for a near fall. Um, yeah, just a lot of just wild, kind of insane uh, spots. Once again, uh, Cheese Grater came out, and Despy was uh, cheese grating Moxley's forehead. Uh, so, yeah, these guys are doing all kind of crazy spots. We did have a, a shout out to uh, June Kasai, who was on commentary for this match. And, uh, Despy put his goggles on and did the you know uh, the, the splash that he does um, onto Moxley for a near fall. So yeah, these guys are just going back and forth doing a lot of crazy spots. And like you mentioned, um, Despy was able to kick out of the, the short arm uh, Death Rider, um, and you know really firing up. Like you mentioned, kind of showing his fighting spirit. Uh, but towards the end there, uh, Moxley hit the, uh, the the curb stomp and put him away with the uh, the elevated Death Rider. Yeah, and I mean, right now we're, you know, I'm looking at the cage match ratings, and like this is only the eighth highest rated match in New Japan this year, and it's sitting at an eight point eight eight. So New Japan, you know, uh, I'm not going to sit here and say it's it's back back, but like, boy, we're having they're having a fantastic year, and uh, this main event was the culmination of two really great shows back to back. Two things I'd like to say about this. One, I love John Moxley in New Japan. Um, for longtime listeners, if you might recall, I had some um, hesitations about John Moxley's uh, involvement with New Japan when he first got here during the G1. And some of that revolved around the work that was being done, and some of that revolved around the the booking that was being given to him at the time. And... You know, a lot of those fears that I had have kind of been put to rest because as time's gone on, yeah, John Moxley gets favorable booking. Yeah, he rarely loses, but he also always helps the bottom line in very favorable ways. He's also one of the few guys that works on the other side, speaking of like, say, you know, a big company like AEW who's willing to come in and do these kinds of shots on the regular. And there's not very many big stars from AEW or any other part of the world that's going to come in and do a death match with El Desperado and Cork and Hall just (laughs) because they want to. Like that just, you know, so you have to really respect and and love what this guy brings to the table. And, you know, he's got a blood and guts match coming up. He has his own things going on in his own company. But like he wrestled his ass off these two nights, and it you know he could have easily rested on the fact that like hey I'm here here's my star presence 
I'm going to do a, a spot. I'm going to bleed, but that's it. You know, he could have done a smoke and mirrors. This man did not do smoke and mirrors. This man, like he wanted all the smoke and he got his ass beat and he beat ass. And like, that's, what's great about John Moxley in new Japan. Um, even more than, you know, a few weeks ago, someone asked us like, what's the real big difference between him in new Japan and AEW? And there's not really a huge difference, but like, he's not doing this shit in AEW, bro. (laughs) (laughs) He's just not, this was awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, So I kind of have to say that I was wrong on that. The other thing that I'm not going to say I'm a hundred percent wrong, but you know, we've had some, um, over the years, especially me, I've had some, uh, criticisms of new Japan strong just in general, because it wasn't necessarily, you know, it was like geared to the U S market, but it wasn't necessarily expanding new Japan to like get on TV and that sort of thing. And I'm, and I'm so, you know, kind of wondering like, what is this going to be? How's it going to be? And then even when they switched formats recently, we've had some, um, you know, some hesitations about that and, and, and what's the right business move. But to see this company bring this brand over to Japan and yeah, it is still distinctly new Japan in, in essence, but there's also a very distinct American style wrestling presentation that's mixed in there. That's wholly unique from what you see on a regular new Japan show. I think that's cool. And I think that that is something that um, maybe when we're watching these quote unquote strong shows in the U S people are missing because they're like, I want new Japan. Well, it's like, well, it is new Japan, but it's new Japan strong because it is still uh, slightly U S based. Not everybody that was involved with, with new Japan strong was able to come over and be part of this, but to see the guys that were able to, endear themselves to management to the office and to you know and to be able to come over here after all these years of struggle and and everything and actually be on these shows and be in japan and and show you know their their work i think that that's fantastic do i think that new japan strong across the board has been perfect no i don't but to see them go from empty arenas in in uh, you know the championship wrestling from hollywood studio to this this was fucking awesome, you know, and and I think there is room for New Japan Strong, whatever that might be moving forward. Yeah, you know, we had Rocky on here, episode two hundred, kind of talking about the creation of New Japan Strong, and you know, it was kind of you know just a thing on the fly. Like we're in COVID pandemic, we have all these you know U.S. based wrestlers. That they can't get to Japan right now. What are we going to do with them? And like you mentioned, they're doing they start doing these empty arena weekly TV shows. And yeah, what it's turned into now, it's it's been great and something that wasn't you know they they were talking about it, but there was no like concrete game plan and to kind of just pull a switch and to see it evolve as it's go. It's been kind of cool to kind of see it from the ground up. And like you mentioned, there's definitely stuff we kind of question or you know might have criticisms on but overall i think for the most part i think we've always kind of enjoyed the strong brand and especially like the, the big matchups and you know filthy tom's uh title reign and bring you know bringing in aussie open and team filthy and the la dojo young young lions you know renderita really got to shine on that brand so overall the brand has done a lot of great stuff and i think any 
criticism we do have is we say that because we want to see the brand grow and be the best it can be and, and help New Japan out. And I think uh, these two well, shows were definitely a great step in, in helping New Japan out. Okay, so certainly there's definitely been some business criticisms for sure. We've had issues with the presentation, some of the business stuff, and, and some of the stuff that affects New Japan. But when you talk about what New Japan Strong represented for the workers, that's a different thing. And I think that that's where a lot of New Japan Strong success lies and where you can rest your laurels. Because were, were everybody that was involved with New Japan Strong, some of the bigger names like, you know, um, we could throw a few out there, Barrett Brown or uh, Adrian Quest. Adrian Quest, Mysterioso, some of those types of guys, were they able to be on this show? No. Will they in the future? Who knows? I don't know. Like, we haven't really seen them too much on this new iteration of New Japan Strong. But those guys were given a platform. And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I don't know that there was anybody that appeared on New Japan Strong that didn't benefit in one way or another. Like, did it make everybody's career that was involved with it probably not but there are people that are here right now like bad dude tito like royce isaacs like jr kratos. nelson jr kratos people you know dkc dkc you know uh the la dojo a lot of those guys you wouldn't know them and they wouldn't be working in japan and they it, it probably up to this point did make their careers you know what i mean mm-hmm for the guys that maybe it didn't, it definitely gave them booking power for working indies and you know being able to ask for a better rate and being able to say, like, I've been on this platform, I got this experience, I've worked with Rocky Romero, I worked with Kent, I worked with you know Jeff Cobb. The list goes on and on. And there's many of those people that, you know, and there was a time where a lot of the guys that were working strong were getting poached by NXT. It didn't work out for all of them, but a lot of people got launched to go to NXT. A lot of people got launched to go to Ring of Honor and AEW and Impact Pro Wrestling. And a lot of those guys are working internationally on the on the indies. There's so many people that uh, would not be would not have been able to work in the pandemic era. Not only were able to work, but also were able to get exposure and were able to expand their you know their talents to other places and and ask for more money because they were able to be on the show so from that standpoint i do think that it holds a a pretty important place and you know hats off to rocky and everybody else that was involved with this project and then to see it uh you know expand into what it is now and like do i think that the u.s expansion is perfect like no but these two shows were fucking awesome. Like I give these shows the highest recommendation that I could give them for the year. They were so much fun. They were a blast to watch. Everybody was working their asses off. And like, you know, normally I'm pretty critical of the idea of like a $30, you know, two night pay-per-view experience from new Japan. But like, these were pretty much worth it. Honestly. Yeah, these shows are great, and you had the great New Japan World production, so there was none of the the you know fight issues you, you would normally get with a uh, strong branded show. So yeah, production wise, it's great. The wrestling was great. Um, John Moxley in the post match, uh, he said that uh, when he's in Japan, that he is the king of NJPW. 
Um, and he, you know, says that Cork and Hall is the heartbeat of professional wrestling and everyone around the world knows it. And he said he was baptized in fire at Cork and Hall and a piece of his heart will always be here in Tokyo. So I saw an article where he said he's aiming for the IWGP title. Now he's held the AEW title and the WWE title and Nobody has held those two titles as well as the IWGP. He wants to be the first. So, you know, who knows? Yeah, pre-COVID, I thought we were, you know, lining up John Moxley to potentially be, be a challenger and contender going into the 2020 and potentially winning that title. Um, but obviously COVID happened and things have, have changed up. But Clearly, we know that he he wants to continue to work New Japan, and I think with his new AEW contract, you know, he's like quote unquote like the the ambassador for you know, between AEW and New Japan, and you know him and and his conversation with Rocky were you know one of the keys that really kind of helped open the quote unquote forbidden door between New Japan and AEW. So Moxley loves uh, New Japan very much, and I do you know. I know people are probably not going to like it, uh, but I, I do think he is a guy that would be worthy of being IWGP World Heavyweight Champion. Obviously, the politics surrounding that, how often would he be able to make defenses, um, there, there's some concern there, but I do think he would be a great champion. If if I, I would have no problem with John Moxley being champion, as long as it's in the right time of the year to where he can make the right dates. Like, you know, let's, let's not kid ourselves. Does the champion need to be on every road to show? Of course. No, but there are times where the champion needs to be around and it can't just be for the big four shows. Right. You you can't just show up the one time there needs to be some dates in addition to a big show that the champion shows up. But I think that if you're creative in the way that you do it, you could definitely work that out, but um, you know, if it's going to be a situation, I mean, honestly, at this point with the way that things have shook out with uh, Kenny Omega as, as a U.S. champion, that fucking sucked. Like, there's no, there's no getting around it. It was, it was dog shit. It, it fucking sucked. It really, really sucked. So, if it's anything like that, that would be horrible. Yeah, and I don't think anybody wants that. Yeah, but I think with Moxley, I mean, again, like you mentioned earlier, like coming to these Cork and shit, like. He didn't have to do these these cork and shots, and we've seen him make an effort of wanting to do, especially some of these smaller New Japan dates and do the, the U.S. New Japan shows. So I feel like Moxley would be a guy who would fight to come over more and defend that title again. I don't know if Kenny did or not or what the deal with Kenny not coming back more, but I feel like Moxley would definitely kind of be more gung-ho to be coming over. He could probably want to be on the road to shows. <laughs> <laughs> and he he would probably fight for that. Right. And again, it doesn't have to be every one of them, but you need to, if, if you're strategic in the way you do it, I'm sure you could work it out. Yeah. Um, we did have some questions about this match as well as the follow-up of the show that we should probably speed through. Yeah. So Hawaiian punch BV on Reddit says with all the death match desperado we've been getting, when are we getting some death match Shingo? One of the reasons that he left Dragon Gate was that he wanted to do more death matches. I'm not the booker, but I'd love to see it. Yeah, I mean, why not? Let's let's do it. Uh, Last Commission 7252 says, Has both independent shows, in your opinion, are in close contention to New Japan shows like 
Sakura Genesis, Dominion, and Wrestling Dantaku. Great shows, both of them top to bottom. They're very comparable, but I feel like the second night is maybe the better show just because of the uh, more singles matches, more title matches, title changes, and some angles, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I don't think that they're that far off from some of these better shows that New Japan's produced this year. Yeah, they're definitely great show. I would say maybe the Dominion was overall maybe better uh, show, but I mean, it was right up there with, yeah, like a secure Genesis, Dontaku. Uh, Reddit user fecal underscore soup says, What happened? Why? Why is that your name? <laughs> Would having these strong Independence Day shows in Corkin be a yearly event like Fantastica Mania be something that you guys would enjoy? If they're like this, yes. Yeah, I mean, they, these shows are booked perfectly, so yeah, this kind of replaces. You know that that honor rising tour, and you, you you throw every you know every summer, every Fourth of July, we're gonna have the you know the strong Independence Day shows. I'd be down. Uh, he says, besides obviously having someone like a Fred Rosser come over, are there any other wrestlers that you'd enjoy coming over on a show like this, or are there any wrestlers that you wish would come over more? It's been a minute since I've seen Bad Dude Tito or Zayn come over, and it's good to see them again. Well, I think New Japan probably needs to shit or get off the pot when it comes to uh, Filthy Tom Lawler. He's not even in the G1 this year, and it is a little bit of a glaring omission, the fact that neither him nor anybody from Team Filthy are even in um, the G1 Climax, considering how many slots there are this year. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a guy that I feel like is probably going to get signed to AEW sooner rather than later, and we're going to just have to see him go. But, um, you know, I... I most of the most of the guys that were here, I thought it, it was awesome to see them come here. Um, I'm not sure that there's any major names that were omitted that were from New Japan Strong, but some of the ones we brought up, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to them coming over at some point either. Yeah, I think the, the biggest name that was missing was Fred Rosser. There was a, a yeah. statement that was put on NJPW1972.com, and he apologized, and it was a situation where he just couldn't, Make the show so also he was kind of the biggest name associated with that brand that probably wasn't there. Um, but I mean, obviously, there's a lot of workhorse guys that would be cool to see. I mean, Young Fuego, Adrian Quest, uh, you know, Barrett Brown and Bateman, um, Mysterioso, the Straight Dog Army was an, another mm-hmm. kind of foundation uh, of strong. Um, besides those guys, I mean, also, there, there, there's a ton of indie guys that they they brought in, but. Those are probably some of the names that would be cool to see eventually get a, sh- a shot in Japan. Uh, it says, uh, next question, MJSPR says, the Independence Day crowds at Corkin were red hot. Do these reactions signal a desire for more breaks from tradition? And does that worry you at all? Not really, because, I mean, uh, Corkin Hall, yeah, it's a 1,400-seat crowd, but you know, it's Tokyo. Tokyo is a very populous city, and there's a lot of different types of wrestling fans that are attracted to different brands. Clearly, I'm not saying that the fans that were there weren't New Japan fans, but, um, you know, it's like this was kind of a niche show, similar to like Fantastic Mania, similar to like the Honor Risings. And I don't know if um, that basically is a, is a key indicator that the overall fan base is wanting to see this type of style of work in their new Japan. Um, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. That's something they could probably toy around with. 
and earlier in the show, you kind of asked me to go through the history. One thing I forgot to mention, there have been several other sub brands of New Japan in the past. Um, I forget the name of them all, but there was like WrestleLand and uh, Never was a brand at one point. And I think I forget there was a few others, but there were there were also some like deathmatch style wrestling that occurred on those sub brands as well. And they didn't at the time amount to major changes in New Japan because that's just what they were. They were sub brands with different styles of wrestling than what New Japan typically does. Um, Am I opposed to New Japan changing with the times and then, uh, you know, instituting some of this stuff? Not at all, you know, but it needs to make sense. It needs to be something that's going to get over that the crowds are going to be happy about. And I I really don't think we're ever going to see a day where like uh you know they go the, the the way of the attitude era and like we're gonna see a bunch of you know gimmick matches on the shows it's just you know it's it's not ever gonna be like that so I'm okay with the occasional you know changing of of things on a on a major show or whatever. Yeah and like you mentioned with uh Fantastic Mania on Horizon it's not like they did we ever those shows always sell out they're always popular we never got like a a year's worth of Fantastica Manias. We don't get a Tokyo Dome Fantastica Mania or Tokyo Dome Monorizing. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, these shows being popular is going to, you know, hurt anything with the brand. We're still going to get the traditional, you know, New Japan style on, on these really big shows. But I think it's a kind of a great way to present something different. Like you mentioned, there's a ton of different tastes in wrestling and, we saw there was a, a ton of ghouls in the crowd, a lot of fans of Jun Kasai uh, that came to these shows. Like, there's different types of fans that you can attract to a sub brand like this, offer something unique. And also, again, it kind of helps with the, the Western expansion as well. Also, trying to establish a strong brand in Japan so that way when it comes back over to America, um, it's more of a, um, of a commodity and it helps draw here. Uh, then last question here from Oscar Rooney on Twitter says, I felt that this was a special NJPW show, not the best show special because it, because it, uh, it meant a lot to the wrestlers. Do you agree? You're on mute, Josh. (laughs) Sorry. I, uh, yeah, I thought the shows were great. I thought, uh, they were great because the shows themselves were great, but also because it was very important to the talent that were involved. And that was very apparent. Yeah, I mean, like, just seeing like, the the emotional moment there with Eddie Kingston and him, you know, crying after winning that title. Like, this opportunity meant a lot for a lot of these guys. And I know people are saying, "What well, what are the strong names should have been there?" But I mean, they had a lot of guys that worked strong on there. Eddie, Team Filthy, Bad Dude Tito, Zane, DKC. There were a lot of guys on these cards that uh, grinded uh, through this this project of strong out Zane. And for them to uh, all, you know, get this opportunity to to be on this stage and to get a spotlight here and to be on pay-per-view, uh, I think it's a pretty cool thing. So uh, let's move into the news now. So uh, one big uh, news story we got to talk about, uh, you know, we got a post from uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling saying, in recognition of their quick ascension in the ranks of New Japan Pro Wrestling and desire to lead a new generation of NJPW, Shoto Umino, Ren Narita, and Yota Tsuji 
will be collectively known as the Rewa Three Musketeers. So we know that we are in the, the Rewa era. And uh yeah, New Japan officially labeling these guys as the you know the new three musketeers. All these guys have you know commented and saying you know they don't want to be labeled as a musketeer. There's been a lot of back and forth. We've seen you know Gabe Kidd and the LA Dojo guys saying, you know, we are the real, you know, three musketeers. We're we're more over, we've made it more than these guys. So and then there's just been a lot of interesting discourse on Twitter online about whether or not these guys should have been labeled this, whether it's detrimental, and a lot of kind of back and forth here. Uh, Josh, what do you think about these guys being labeled as, uh, you know, the Railway Three Musketeers by the company? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, uh, uh, I think it's a a really smart way for them to drum up a lot of uh, talking points and controversy and interest from the fans and passion and, you know, create dialogue and storylines i don't know if i necessarily see it as a a truly long-term marketing campaign that's going to stick i know in the past uh you know for those that are not aware the the original three musketeers were chono uh, muto and hashimoto in the 90s and then in the like 2000s like late 2000s 2010s they had the new era musketeers, which was like Tanahashi, Nakamura, and uh, Shibata. And I think at one point, Wataro Inui might have been considered the one of the three musketeers before Nakamura came around. Because that's one thing people forget. Nakamura is not the same generation as Tanahashi and, and Shibata. He came out like two or maybe like three or four years after them. But um, I could be wrong on that. But regardless, eventually it became known as Nakamura and those other two. And now we have this new storyline. And who knows? Maybe it was a true blue marketing idea that they really want to label these guys as the Musketeers. And that's fine if it is. I don't totally buy it. I think the fact that these guys are all going into the same block in the G1 the fact that it, it creates a lot of dialogue between them as well as the other, you know, Bull Club War Dog guys. And then you sort of have like Yui Mora, who's on the outside. And he's getting, he's from the same generation. He's getting ready to come back from, from excursion at any time. And he's kind of like left out in the cold. Then you've got like Great Okan, who's also not a part of it. And then at the same time, all of these guys have issues with uh, Okada. And then you have the old guard of New Japan who all have something to say about this. It's just a, I think it's a brilliant storyline that has just been kicked off through the new medium of social media. And I think it's something that the office basically knew was going to stir controversy. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we call, you know, like the Shinian freaks that are like bought this hook, line, and sinker, and they're all arguing with each other about who the real ace is going to be and who's really deserving of this and what's right, what's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And I I think it's just a brilliant way for them to create tension between the characters so that they all want to fight each other so that we all want to see them fight each other so so they can all prove who's really the best. And since we're going into this transitionary period where, you know, eventually someone's going to succeed Okada – what better way to do that than to create, um, you know, issues between these guys? I think it's awesome. 
Yeah, I think it's a definitely a way, especially since we didn't really have a, a show that's really going to build to G1 to help create some more tension. Like, this was a great way. Like you mentioned, all these guys are in that that A block with Sonata. Um, so, yeah, it creates more tension between those guys, and they don't want to be musketeers. They don't want to be lumped together. They all want to be the ace, and they all want to beat Okada. And so now they have more kind of incentive to want to one-up each other and beat each other to prove, like, all right, we're not musketeers, like, I'm I'm an ace and I'm you know trying to beat Okada, uh, so yeah I think it's it's brilliant I think it's going to lead to several storyline opportunities it, it can it can kind of build um, you know a few of like the LA Dojo guys against these guys and of course you know Yuya Uemura is still on excursion on Impact and you know, he loves playing around on Twitter telling people he's not a part of New Japan and he's signed full time with Impact but you know sources in the company say that he's still a part. Uh, New Japan so he's uh, I, I gotta guess he's gotta be coming back sometime soon as well so uh, and you still got great, great Okan that's there um, as well like so there's a lot of guys that this announcement affects and kind of creates story and rivalries uh, I think it's gonna be great I think it's gonna be great too uh, a couple other news items John Moxley defeated Tomohiro Ishii this last Wednesday on Dynamite how awesome was that match yeah that was great I mean uh, Moxley and Ishii, two guys that don't miss, and also their G One match was great, and so yeah, they had another uh, great match up here on uh, you know cable TV. It was awesome. Um, CMLL presented New Japan Fantastic Mania Mexico on June thirtieth, twenty twenty three, from Arena Mexico. I, I believe this is pay per view only. You have to sign up, I think, on YouTube uh, through their membership. But uh, we have the results here: Los Infernales. That's Dark Silhouetta. Yuvia and Zuexis, they defeated La Catalina, La Huarquita, and uh, Stephanie Vacor. There's a best two out of three falls tag team match between Doki and Akamoris. They defeated Awadaz and Captain Suicida. Lightning match between El Santanico and Tiger Mask went to a time limit draw of 10 minutes. Two out of three falls match as Mascara Dorada 2.0 defeated El Desperado 12 minutes and 53 seconds. Best two out of three falls six-man tag team matches. Los Ingernables de Japón, Bushi, Naito, and Teton defeated Atlantis Jr., Mystico, and Soberano Jr. I, I learned that there was, um, during uh, one of the following CMLL shows, I don't know which one it was, but there was uh, issues between the LIJ team and the current Ingernables team that's that exists in CMLL. and It's sort of like a Civil War storyline. Uh, kicking off between them so uh, i guess we'll learn more about that and then the main event which i i heard was highly rated uh the nwa world historic welterweight title rocky romero successfully defended the title against volador jr 22 minutes and two seconds something we definitely need to check out and congratulations to rocky once again um july 9th this coming weekend red pro epic encounter will osprey will be taking on leon slater zach saber jr takes on jordan breaks Filthy Tom Waller will take on Luke Jacobs, and the undisputed British Championship will be on the line as Great Ocon defends the title against Michael Oku. One last thing I didn't see here, but I thought was worth making mention on um, July second, Dragon Gate Kobe uh, Pro Wrestling Festival 2023. Uh, Shingo Takagi successfully defeated Kono Mama Ichikawa twice on the same evening. Once uh, in a 17 second victory, and then uh, a few. I guess right after that, I don't know the story, <laughs> but he fought him again and beat him by TKO five minutes and 55 seconds. And then um, later in the evening, Hiromu Takahashi defeated Yamato 
14 minutes and 33 seconds. Nice. And we have a couple of questions here, and then we'll go to a recommended match of the week and wrap the show up here. So uh, uh, three questions here from Les Commission 7252. First, it says, who has a brighter future and could become the face of Japanese wrestling? Kiyomiya, Umino, Suji, or Narita? You know what? For me, and this is just based off of what I've seen so far, and I could be completely wrong, but I, I'm going with Suji, man. I think that Suji has an X factor, uh, a certain um, charisma that the other three guys maybe don't have. And he also has the size, too. Like He's tall, and he's bigger than these guys, and he has the athleticism to go with that, too. So to me, he's kind of like very well-rounded. Like He has the look. Um, you know, he has uh, the wrestling ability, like you mentioned, the charisma. I don't really know about his promo because also we don't really, we don't speak Japanese. Um, but it seems like he can he can cut a decent promo. So, I mean, I feel like he kind of has everything. Where I feel like all the other guys kind of have they're really strong in one area. Where I feel like Suji's more kind of strong in a lot of areas. Yeah, I mean, I, I and it might not end up being him. Um, I've heard some people say that. Everything about him screams dark ace. But the thing I I always try to like tell people is like we're in a transitionary period, so I wouldn't try and focus too much on the history of New Japan and use that as an indication of what they will or won't do. I mean, sure there are certain proclivities they have, but ultimately we're in a transitionary period where anybody could end up being the ace. I mean, Oiwa could end up being the ace. Could be uh, uh, Uemura as well. So I mean, those are all possibilities, but. Just given those four choices he gave me, I think Suji has the most upside personally, and that's mainly based on charisma. That's the main thing I'm going off of there. Yeah, I agree with you. He also asked, if Kiyomiya ends up facing Okada and defeating him, would it make sense for him to defeat Sonata if they indeed already have planned for him to defeat Okada? I don't think it would be smart to have him defeat the world champion and new Japan's top guy for the past decade. I mean, it's the G one. So anything could happen. I mean, if you're going to have him beat Sonata, then he should get a title shot against Sonata, um, you know, in the near future, but, but he might, you know, he doesn't have to beat Sonata to wind up in a situation where he faces Okada. Yeah. I think there's definitely ways to do it. uh, I think that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. You could have it where he ends up beating Sonata for the title, and you have a kind of crazy story of him kind of holding the title hostage and then defends against Okada at Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, I I don't even remember us talking about that, but that's, yeah, that would be crazy. <laughs> um, his last question says, if the plan is for Okada to possibly face Danielson, Kiyomir, or any of the young, young stars, does this mean the Okada vs. Osprey story will be finished here in the G1? No. Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, New Japan, they, they tell, you know, long, you know, term stories, and I think, also right now, Osprey's main story and focus has been this rivalry with Kenny Omega. Uh, and I think, you know, like he said, his Osprey's whole goal this year is, you know, if he can't beat Kenny, that he was going to be done, and will he beat Kenny at Forbidden Door, and we know that rivalry is not open, based over based off of what they said on uh, Dynamite last week, you know, Kenny 
saying he wants a rematch and Will saying I know a place we can do it. So um, I, I think that once they complete the Kenny Will storyline, and if Will resigns, because I mean all reports are saying his contract is up uh, February of next year, um, and and all his comments have stated that he wants to stay with New Japan. If he stays with New Japan, I think we will get you know the big Osprey Okada Tokyo Dome match probably for Wrestle Kingdom 19. Uh, then last question here from Hawaiian Punch BB says Glate recently announced Kota Ibushi for their big Ryogoku Sumo Hall show. Fujita Jr. Hayato defending Glate's UWF championship against Ibushi is something that I want to happen on that show with Glate mostly working with AJPW now. Do you think that NJPW will work with them again? Would Ibushi work with NJPW again if they did? Well, I mean, um, I, I'm glad that Ibushi's back and he's working with them on that show. And yeah, I would love to see him in uh, Junior Hayato. But, um, you know, there was a news report. I, we didn't cover in the news, but there's an expectation that they may bring Abushi uh, uh, into AEW here in the near future. There have been talks, and th- that's kind of the the, the talk that uh, a lot of the talent sort of expect him to be made an offer and maybe uh, even come in for the uh, um, Blood and Guts program. And they've done dual contracts in the past, and there have also been news reports that uh, the issues that existed between him and new japan have been put to rest and that there is the possibility he might even return to new japan so i think there's a speculation out there right now that long term the landing place for him would be some sort of dual contract situation between new japan and AEW, where he would probably primarily work in AEW, and i think that that's pretty plausible yeah i mean all signs are definitely pointing to him being the fifth man for the elite for the blood and guts match coming up uh, in a couple of weeks in uh, Boston. Uh, and like you mentioned, a lot of reports of people yeah, kind of expecting Ibushi to uh, start with AEW uh, pretty soon. So I do think that with AEW's relationship with New Japan, we could see Ibushi work with uh, New Japan again. Uh, but again, you know, it's Kota Ibushi. It's very kind of hard to predict exactly what he's going to do and when he's going to do it and what his mindset is at, at the time of things. So um, I, I can see him being a guy that's kind of wrestles kind of wherever he wants to wrestle because he, he's a top star and I think he has the kind of the stroke to kind of go where he wants to go. Well, that's going to take us to uh, recommended and excursion matches of the week. Um, so last week for the uh, recommended match, I recommended um, Shibata versus Hanma from uh, G1 Climax 24. Yeah, uh, this match has uh, a four and three quarters rating from Dave Meltzer and a 9.17 rating on Cage Match, one of the highest rated uh, New Japan matches that are out there. It's from G1 Climax 24 Night 8, which actually is like one of the more legendary cards new japan ever did because um it's almost yeah it's all block tournament matches and let's count them there's um one two three four five six seven eight matches that are all 
at or near the four-star range, uh, maxing out with this match in particular as being the highest rated of the evening. And so, yeah, there's like eight just classic bangers all on the same night. Um, yeah, the, the G124 was fucking wild. Anyways, um, Shibata versus Hanma just fucking rules. I mean, it's barely over... It's under 11 minutes, 10 minutes and 47 seconds. If you've never seen it, you need to go out of your way and check this out. And this was smack dab in the middle of Hanma um, being in the midst of Hanma mania. If you're not familiar with what that is, this was a time where, um, you know, Tomoaki Hanma was uh, brought into the G1 climax. He was sort of an unlikely uh, participant and someone that was not winning any matches, but he was fighting so hard in his tournament matches that like the crowd were they were becoming enthralled with him and he was easily becoming one of the most popular wrestlers in all of new japan and i know for a lot of people he firmly falls into like dad status these days but at this time he was over like one of the most over guys in the company but he was losing every single night and this was an ongoing story from from g1 to g1 like it took a long time before he picked up uh his first g1 victory but um this match with shibata he threw everything he had at Shibata. And this has got to be one of the most violent and stiff matches in the history of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, just 10 minutes of wild craziness. They brawl on the outside, they brawl on the inside. And not only are they mixing in very, very serious violence, but like the drama created in the match because uh, Shibata is trying to hit the turnbuckle drop kick and, and he keeps missing and at the same time, like Hanma's trying to hit the uh, Kokeshi and he keeps missing. And there's one point where Hanma just throws his big ass head straight into um, Shibata's face as hard as he possibly can. And he just shoot head. It's one of the sickest shoot headbutts you've ever seen. Just fucking flies right into his face like a suicide dive, but like for real. And um, both guys are bleeding. It's, it's gross, but it's, it's a crazy match. But ultimately, um, Shibata gets him in the GTS, hits the PK, one, two, three, gets him out of there. The crowd was rabid for uh, Hanma. They wanted Hanma to win here, and uh, he threw everything he could at Shibata, but he wasn't able to pick up the victory on this night or the next night or the next night or the next night. But um, an incredible match. I mean, one of the it's got to be one of the greatest sub-10-minute matches in the history of professional wrestling. Yeah, excellent match. Um, then for the excursion match of the week, you picked uh, Robbie X versus Will Ospreay from the One PW show uh, in April. Um, this was a, another awesome matchup here. Um, just kind of reminds me of a almost like the Ric Flair template of you know the established you know world champion guy going to face like the promotion's local hero and. Having a great match with him, giving him some shine, but then ultimately, you know, overcoming that hero and, you know, being the top guy he is. And I think that was kind of the formula here that we got in this matchup. 1PW being the home promotion of Robbie X, Will Ospreay, the big, you know, British star coming in. And uh, I thought it was a match that really did help, you know, try to get Robbie X over. And, uh, you know, he called himself the king of the cruiserweights, and he had a lot of great. Um, high-flying uh, maneuvers against Will Ospreay, and Will was more of kind of the, the bruiser powerhouse. We've kind of seen uh, Will kind of uh, adapt the style, you know, doing the, the spinning, 
you know, tilt a roll backbreaker, uh, more strike base offense. So uh, Will tried to keep Robbie grounded and um, use more of the power offense to negate some of the high flying, but Robbie did get a lot of great moves and still a lot of great near falls. Uh, but uh, towards the end, uh, Will hit the hidden blade from the front, but uh, Robbie kicked out for a, a great near fall there. Um, and then eventually Will had to put him away with the Stormbreaker to get the win. So in terms of uh, excursion match the year contendership, where would you where do you see this one going? Um, I, I think it's a fringe contender right now. Uh, I think it, it's I'm like four and a quarter, four and a half range. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's something that's probably going to be on like the chopping block by the time we get to uh, November. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's uh, jump into this week's recommendations, and I'm going to start us off. It's a uh, uh, kind of New Japan, but not quite. Um, Throwing it back to the New Japan slash WCW Starcade 1995 World Cup of Wrestling. And my recommended match of the week is Shinjiro Otani representing New Japan for Wrestling taking on Eddie Guerrero of WCW for the WCW World Cup tournament. Nice. That should be fun to check out. Uh, and then for the excursion match of the week, going to go with Willie Mack versus El Desperado from the June 29th edition of Ring of Honor TV. Mm, okay. Oh, yeah. We forgot to mention Nagata lost the All Japan title to Aoagi. Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that, too. <laughs> Well, that's it. That's going to wrap things up for us here this week. Next, we'll be back to preview G1 Climax 33 with Chris Samsa. So if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media on Twitter. The show is at KI Strong Style. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. Follow the network at Social Suplex on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Social Suplex. Also find us in the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group. On Instagram, we are at Social Suplex. Also created a, a Threads account. You can follow at Social Suplex on Threads. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan on Threads. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, should we go there? Like, they're doing a 600 count, but like, I'm not on Twitter enough to do like 600 that seems like too i know for some people that seems like a like too little but that's like too much like i don't look at 600 tweets a day uh, so i don't know but shit seems like it's broken but i fucking hate mark zuckerberg so i don't want to be on i don't know i don't know what we do <laughs> just, just also the- i don't want to do any more social media <laughs> uh we got we got to go with the trends where, where the people are going uh, so, are they there? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, there's been uh, over 30 million people that have signed up for Threads like in the first day. All right, Shill. <laughs> <laughs> so follow us on uh, Threads. I'll, I'll probably create a Keeping a Strong Style Threads as well. Uh, well bro, so, but how's that going to work? Because I'm not I'm, I'm not doing the stuff we do on Twitter on Threads too. That's too much. 
Well, we'll figure. I'll copy and paste. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> oh my god, this is too much. Uh, email Can me. Can we link them together so it just does it at the same time? That would be the best thing. Uh, probably. Hopefully, one of these uh, social media management tools will. They're not going to let us because those guys are trying to fight each other in the Roman Colosseum. <laughs> yeah, now uh, Musk is uh, trying to sue Zuck um, for threads, so it's going to be interesting. Well, they, they said they stole it all. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, some a lot of people steal gimmicks to make it better, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can also email me, jeremy at socialsuplex.com. Check out all the shows that we have here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. One Nation Radio hosted by Rich Plata and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences hosted by Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite hosted by Floyd and Austin. The AEW Match Guide podcast hosted by Sir Sam. And the Great Match Generator hosted by Danny Kukler. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style. The Ace of Podcasts. Itchy Bob. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.